I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom, would you like to introduce our very special guest today? Absolutely. Tom, how you doing? Doing good. Nice to good. show. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you for coming on. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I didn't get a chance to find out about your encounter, but it, you do a lot of different things. You work with the Native communities. You do artwork for Bigfoot, you know, Bigfoot-related artwork, and you've had an encounter. Um, I'm just going to hand it off to you, but start off with your encounter and then some of the stuff that you do. Oh, God, which encounter? I lived in off northeastern Vancouver Island, which is my tribal traditional territories. We're called Kwakwakiwak, otherwise known as Kwagiutl at one time or Kwagyoth. But uh, of all the First Nations in Canada, that's what we call us Indians, and North American Indians in the United States, I think with the traveling I've done and, you know, research, our tribe has the closest tie to Sasquatch, which we call Chonacha. And uh, our villages to this day are just filled with what you would call totem poles. We call them dowry poles and welcoming poles, house poles and our traditional big houses where we hold our great potlatch ceremonies and feasts and everywhere you go on Vancouver Island you see the Chonacha like uh, Campbell River our city uh, that we uh, it's uh, south it used to be called southern Kwakwakiwak but they refer to themselves as Lehuata there's four different tribes that make up them but uh, their small city it's just filled with Chonacha carvings and has the world's largest uh, wood carving of a Jonahua in the big house and the graveyard behind the superstore grocery store. There's a traditional memorial pole with a big Jonahua at the base. And everywhere you go in that city, you'll see carvings of them. And then when you go further north on Vancouver Island and you get up to the Port McNeil and take the ferry across to where I was born, Alert Bay, it's a community with the highest concentration of Chonahuas on earth. That whole town is filled with Chonahuas. It's almost, I compare going to Alert Bay now like King Kong in the 1970s when you go to the native tribes and they got all these carvings of King Kong. That's almost what Campbell River and Alert Bay are like. And, you know, it's, you know, one thing a lot of people look at him, they just think, you know, it's a character with big lips and large breasts and sleepy eyes with outstretched arms but that's our highest ranked crest and you know right from childhood you're taught about Jonacha you behave yourself because Jonacha is always watching and if you misbehave and you act up as a kid at nighttime she's going to come with her basket or her sack and she's going to shove that big hairy arm through the window or door or porthole on a boat tent 
and she's going to grab the misbehaving child and rub spruce sap from the evergreen tree into your eyes. It's like uh, sticky syrup, and you're going to go blind. And then she's going to throw you in her basket on her back or her sack, and she's going to carry you deep into the forest to her invisible home. And that's where she's going to boil you up and eat you, so you behave yourself. So that's what I was brought up with. And then, you know, I lived my life going to school, of course, and then being a commercial salmon seine fisherman in the summertime. When I got out of school, I became a commercial fishing fisherman in every fishery pretty much on our coast. And I traveled the coast extensively. And uh, I asked questions of other Indian tribes and homesteaders and locals and fishermen. What do you know about Bigfoot, Sasquatch? And then I would hear their tales from their regions. And it really was interesting. And commercial fishing collapsed on us in the early 1990s. And I was asked by my chief and council if I would go to our abandoned native village and be the native watchman. And our village had old totem poles on the ground. And even Emily Carr in the early 1900s painted that village, what it looked like with the traditional big houses and all the totem poles. And some of the depictions were of Chorakha. And there's quite a few in that village at one time. So I go there and I'm working as the native watchman in the summertime and no activity. You know, you know, Junakha is around, but you didn't really care, pay no heed to it. But then fall came and that's when we started hearing the whoop, whoop, whoop and the tree snaps and the tree knocks and the screaming and then all of a sudden we saw one behind our cabin trailer we put a 26 foot trailer on the beach with a landing craft and built an addition and that was our watchman cabin we went there one october and uh, my worker spooked a big sasquatch that was sleeping behind our trailer and under the hemlock and spruce branches uh, he didn't tell me that day. He just told me he ran into the trailer. I saw him from the window, so I grabbed the both guns and we ran outside. I was suspecting a bear. And uh, we looked around and I could smell this god-awful stink. And my partner, watchman, he was pretty shook up, but he didn't say anything until that night when we were going to bed. I'm at the end of the trailer in the bedroom. He's over where the trailer hitch kitchen is with a three windows that he always used to have the blinds down and I used to always tell him Trevor put the blinds down I don't want Jonah looking at me when I'm trying to sleep and he would just laugh and say yeah, there's no such thing well that night as I was going to sleep I looked looked up from my book I was reading by candlelight and all the three blinds were down and Trevor was snoring away and I was thinking oh, that's odd I went to sleep middle of the night I woke up again and I heard him snoring but it was closer and I turned my flashlight on and there was Trevor sleeping in the hallway outside the bathroom <laughs> he didn't want to sleep by the window and I kind of thought I wonder what he saw yesterday so the next day we broke our camp we had a boat coming in and uh, we were shuttling with my speedboat all of the the generator and batteries and equipment out to the boat to shut the camp down for the season and we we're done we put my speedboat on tow behind us and we sat down on the hatch covers on deck and lit up a cigarette and I said well we better say goodbye to native anchorage at home for the last few months and then all of a sudden he looked at me and he goes Tom he goes it wasn't a bear I woke up it was a sasquatch and he described it you know basically Patty from the Bob Gimlin and uh, Patterson film and uh, we didn't think nothing of it the next year, we went back in there for the watchman's program, and 
that's when we started noticing again in the fall that uh, there were smells, noises, big tracks in the grass, and uh, we never saw them until uh, the year later. We no longer had the watchman's program, and in the first week of October, I went in and I was the captain of a commercial fish boat. We went into the native anchorage of the bay and we anchored out. We went ashore, and my girlfriend at the time, who was our cook, she mentioned, boy, it's sure quiet here, no birds. And that night, just as it was getting dark, Trevor, who was with me at the camp before, he's a crewman, he's in the galley with my girlfriend playing crib and BSing away and laughing and boom boxes going, but not too loud. And me and the native crewman, Dean, were on deck cooking up with a Coleman gas stove on the hatch covers, a big pot of crab legs. We harvested probably about 100 Dungeness crab that day. And as we were cooking it, and you hear the hissing of the propane, and deathly quiet, moon's up now, little bit of cloud, no wind. All of a sudden you heard this big noise, I guess. A whistling chirp from the beach, and then a bang against the side of my trailer that was up on the beach. Well, that got me and Dean's attention, and you know, like, wow, what was that? And then we noticed two big bipedal shadows walking by the front of the trailer. And remember, moon's out, it's pretty lit up, trailer's white, this faded gray cedar planks of the addition, and these two big, like humans, walked in front. And it whistled, chirped again, and I turned the fuel off the stove so it quit making noise. I opened the galley door and I shut the boom box off and I told Jojo, you guys be quiet. We think we got a Jonah on the beach. So Trevor and Jojo came on deck and the first thing my girlfriend said was, boy, the beach stinks tonight. And Dean, who was on deck with me, he looked at her and said, Josie, what have you ever smelled the beach smell like that? And besides that, it's half tide rising. The shellfish beach is covered with water. They had clammed up together as kids and teenagers where they lived on the island where they grew up. And uh, that thing made the whistle chirp again. And Trevor, who just bummed a cigarette off Jojo, was half smoked and he was a chain smoker and he was out. After that whistle chirp again, he looked at me and goes, what is that, Tom? I said, what do you think it is? It's what you woke up there a couple of years ago, the Jonah. Trevor flicked his cigarette overboard, he went to the galley door, he opened the engine room door, he went down the ladder, across the metal grates to the engine rooms, opened up the bulkhead door to the foc'sle where the four bunks were for the crew, and that slammed, and that's the last we saw of Trevor that night. It freaked him out that bad. And then uh, time passes, and, you know, I'm thinking, hey, let's put the spotlight on it. So we put the big, probably, a, I guess, a million watt candle watt or whatever they are, but a big boat commercial fish boat spotlight we lit up the beach and there was a sasquatch on the beach with her back to us and she turned and dropped in the fetal position on her knees with her head under her right arm you could see the reflection but the big male that was standing up in the grass with the i guess about 10 foot high hemlock trees were 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 as well it dropped on its knee and it had its right arm in front of its face and you could tell it was moving and breathing because you'd see two eyes reflecting and they were red orange and like really, really red in the beginning. Then they have with the spotlight, they went down to a reddish orange, then an orange and eventually a greenish yellow. And but for 20 minutes, 
we had those two Sasquatches, one kneeling on her hands and knees and the other one on his knees with his arm in front of his face. They, we tried everything. We threw apples and carrots and you name it, potatoes, trying to get them to move. We pulled the camera out to take a picture, but it was a 35 millimeter Instamatic with no film in it. And we we're ripping drawers apart trying to find film, but we couldn't. And then eventually that's when I said, hey, Dean, what was that rifle you brought on? Go get it. So he ran downstairs and came up with a gun case and opened it up, put his rifle on the on the railing outside the starboard rail of my sane boat and I'm in the wheelhouse with the window down and I got my 300 Savage iron sight pointed at the chest of the big male and then Dean lifts his gun up and I said I'll give a count of three to one and we'll squeeze off and keep squeezing and all of a sudden Jojo's Tom Tom you know if you shoot a Sasquatch you know your native legends is going to be the curse it might not be you but me and my kids will probably die and She's carrying on about the curse of our native tribe. And you know you're not supposed to disrespect it like that, she said. And that's when I kind of clued up, clued in. I go to Dean. I said, what caliber you got there? And he was 243. I'm like, no, barrel up, barrel up. And we both put our barrels up. I said, that gun's too small and I'm iron sight. And besides that, I think Jojo's right. We shouldn't harm it or disrespect it. So we put the guns away, kept trying to get them to move. They wouldn't turn the spotlight off and that's when you heard the distinct thump 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 as they're walking across up from the beach one and across the grass and you could hear trees moving brush because they're just small shrubs and all of a sudden you heard that like the canopy wall where the second growth hemlock and cedars were you could hear those branches being parted and the snaps of branches as they walked into the forest and then you just heard this big dead rotten tree being pushed down crash 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 boom and then they disappeared and uh jojo goes to sleep trevor's freaked out he's not on deck he's downstairs and then uh after about an hour or so we heard some noise in the bay further in me and dean threw the spotlight on again and we could see the eye shine of the of one and uh basically another almost 45 minutes goes by we were seeing it but it's you know not clear and if we took a picture it'd be considered a blob squatch we didn't have film and then it's my boat kind of moved in the tide and it's parallel in the beach and we're about 60 70 yards from the beach dean and i are on deck and that's when all of a sudden you could see something come out of the bush and it's walking along the high rock shore with the gray weathered dry drift logs some of them three foot thick so it's really illuminated now and you can see the silhouette of this something that's low so i ran into the wheelhouse i hit the spotlight and hit it and lit it up and i remember it standing up and the hairs hanging off its arms and uh when i that's when it stood up and then that's when i I always remember the hair you could see hanging off its like upper arms or it's just long and we're like holy smokes and dean's like what the f is that and i'm like jesus that thing's big and that's when i ran to the wheel through the galley up into the wheelhouse turned the spotlight on and swung it just as it was walking into the forest and you could see its arm go up and grab this silver alder tree by the trunk and it was about eight inches thick and you see this big hand grab it and this big hairy sasquatch put its right leg up and 
step up about five feet onto the bush bank and it sort of turned at us and you could see on the skin through its hair on its shoulders and then it just walked into the bush and you could hear the noise of the bush and all of a sudden it made this deep whistle chirp and then a higher pitched whistle chirp answered deep in the forest and you could just hear the thing walking like it wasn't hiding anymore you'd hear the slough bushes just crunching and cracking and and uh, that was our experience with Sasquatch. And Dean and I were like, wow, that was something. And uh, we went to bed because we went to fish in a few days. And uh, next morning we went and looked for tracks. Sure enough, there was tracks in the mud at high tide. We were looking over the side of the boat on the beach. Uh, seen the tree that got pushed down. You know, the usual stuff follow up. But that was my first really good encounter with a Sasquatch. And when I got out of the commercial fishery that week and I went south Vancouver Island to my parents place to visit drop some fresh salmon off my dad goes uh, I told my dad about that sighting and he goes well that's something he was this guy with white hair and a beard he was really bouncy and talked real fast chattering he stopped by here's his phone number you should call him he's a Bigfoot investigator and the piece of paper said Dr. John Bindernagel and his phone number so I called him up went up to Courtney and went to his house and gave my interview and that would start the lifetime friendship that Dr. John Brindernagel and myself had and oh I could tell you stories about us going out investigating but there you go that was my first sighting. I used to work on boats and so just your maritime experience and knowledge and stuff that that's interesting it has nothing to do with Bigfoot but it, it, it just strikes a chord with me. Um, I got a question for you, and this is something Willem and I have been talking about last couple of days, and that is when it's raining, and we're all from the Pacific Northwest, when it rains, we can get rain. Birds don't chirp in the rain. I just want to get your take on that. And so when you hear something that sounds like a bird deep in the forest where you got heavy canopy and it's chirping or whistling, do you think that's a bird or do you, do you think it's these guys? The carrion birds will still talk during the rain. I know what you're talking about with the other ones, the dick birds and so forth. They won't make noise in the rain. It's because they don't want to give out their location because they can't hear anything coming at them or really smell because it's uh, everything's dampened by that rain. But yeah, no, you're definitely right. Like it's, uh, you know, you hear a raven, an eagle at night. You know darn well that wasn't a raven or an eagle. You know it was a Sasquatch. They're the master of mimicking. Yeah. We uh, go to conferences. My wife and I, Peggy, and uh, we bring my family's regalia that we've made. That's Tunoch uh, wood carved mask, uh, regalia outfit of uh, fur, a cedar bark basket on her back. And as I'm talking on the stage of the Bigfoot conferences, I'm sharing the Kwakwakiwak perspective beliefs and my encounters but the new mask now we have mouthpieces where she hides herself and she comes up and there's a eagle beak in her mouth and she disappears and comes back and she's got a bear mouthpiece in her mouth and she goes through this and we're gonna have more mouthpieces till eventually we have about 10 and what it is is the composers and my friends and families that I don't sing myself I'm a more of a speaker but they're composing me a native kwakwala sung song 
that tells the story of me traveling around British Columbia coastal area, Northwest Territories, Canada, Omaha Indian Reserve, Washington State, and it's telling you of the different animals I've heard being mimicked by Sasquatch. And I've heard everything from coyotes to whippoorwillows in Omaha, uh, frogs, eagles, bears, seagulls, uh, blue jays, you name it, and wolves. So they're master mimickers. And, you know, definitely that's, you know, one of the biggest things you have to be attuned to is when you hear a sound, you know, you, the best thing in your, for seeing in the bush, it's not so much your eyes, it's your ears and your nose. So trust your ears when you hear that sound. And if you think it's something odd and a mimic, you're more than likely right. And what well, they're doing is communicating with the other ones. We had an encounter like that in September, right? Well, <laughs> we, oh, had yeah. a, we, yep. had a, we had a group of them come around and they were probably 70 to 100 yards up uh, up the slope. You know, we're, we're on a road, it's two in the morning. And on one side, we've got a kind of a good, it drops about, down about 20 or 30 feet. And you got a bench down there and then drops down into a creek. So you got one or two of them down there. And you had it, four of them up to our right, and they're making these owl sounds that are so loud that are, you know, an owl, if it's 100 yards in a thick canopy and a hooch, you're going to hear it, but not, you might hear it. You know, a lot of times that, that canopy is going to attenuate it. But this is, well, these are just piercing loud, right? Not quite to the point of hammering your chest, but very, very loud. Right. And I just want to kind of get your comment on that. What they're doing is they're letting each other in the troop know where they are and who's who by their by their voices. You know, they we I've heard them whistle chirp chatter, and it almost sounds like uh, coastal First Nations dialect. And our old people tell us that uh, you know you, you you just talk Kwakwala to the Chonakwa. They understand our language, and so when they're doing the bird sounds or other animal sounds, they don't want to use their language because right away the human knows it's not an owl. It's not a coyote. It's a Sasquatch. So they're using the animal noises just to position, know where each other is. You know, they got nocturnal vision. They can see good, but bush is bush, you know, and it's thick, it's thick. And what's the best thing about doing a reconnaissance on someone? Well, know where your partners are. You know, nowadays our SEAL teams and that, they got radios and uh, they're able to text each other on wristbands, like those different things you can buy nowadays. But, you know, for Sasquatch, they don't have electronics. So their their version of electronics for positioning one another, I believe, is using the mimic sounds of different animals and birds. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I um no, I just, I just agree with that a, a thousand percent. I got to I want to hear more. I just I got one more real quick question. I'm writing this stuff down that I want to ask. Um, the native language that your tribe spoke and that you speak um, here in the Pacific Northwest, all the way into even the early 1900s uh, in Portland, Oregon, uh, the major banks would have translators that would speak Chinook. Because Chinook yep. was the international trade language, and I'm just curious if that was if that carried all the way up into British Columbia, up into Vancouver Island. 
Oh, absolutely. It was all through Turtle Island, North America, a.k.a. Sasquatch Island. We're standing on it. And Chinook was the, it even had uh, European and Asian words in it, like uh, cabbage, kapusta, sugar, shukwa. You know, I had shukwa and, and uh, um, you know, of course, uh, saltwater, skookumchuk. And uh, my great-grandfather was a translator of Chinook for uh, sailors on the British Columbia coast. So uh, does it, should you use it? Well, hello, how are you doing? Klahauya in Chinook. So if you come across a Sasquatch, maybe you might want to say Klahauya. Never know, you might get a Klahauya back at you. Now you know they speak our language. Interesting, interesting. Well, I just, I wanted to get your take on that. I thought you would probably know. And uh, yeah, so that was, I just thought that was an interesting bit of Pacific Northwest history that even in the banks, you would have, you know, in corporate America, you would have translators that had to be fluent both in Chinook and all the other various tribes who had their yep. own dialects and no, their own language. But when they wanted to trade, they had to speak the Chinook language for the international trade language. Yeah, well, Chinook was derived before European contact. It was because we had travelers and squires that went around Turtle Island, North America. And so when the Europeans and explorers came, they would just pick up on that. And then, of course, some of their words would get mingled into it. And Chinook, like any other language, is always evolving as it goes, more so with contact, because you had so many different tongues coming here from around the world. And uh, Chinook dialect just uh, evolved with them. Like uh, one of the, there was a yellow book produced in the 70s. I got a has, copy of it. <laughs> yeah, that's got the Patterson film clip on the front. Uh, I remember buying that. And I remember one story in there about, uh, float plane going into some bush camp and they had uh, you know eerie feeling and sounds of something that wasn't just out of the ordinary yelling and when they're on the float plane dock waiting for their plane one of the guys said hey make the sound and the guy goes soka soka and lo and behold the sasquatch said well what they thought was a sasquatch speculated up on the hills answered back soka 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 is in the trade dialect so no, that's too fascinating. Too. That, going, hey, what the heck? They're saying a word that we know about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, go ahead. And I, I just wanted to interject that and ask the question, but uh, go ahead and continue with your uh, with your story. Yeah, that was, like I said, my first encounter, you know, my first real good sighting. <clears throat> I had numerous before that. I was at a cousin of mine, him and I, he... He liked to go for walks in the Alpine. So I remember usually at the end of August, beginning of September, we call it the 10-day closure. We don't do any salmon fishing. But I'd be in northern Vancouver Island, and he'd come see me and go, come on, let's go for a walk. So we'd grab our pack, and, you know, about 20 pounds worth of coffee and tobacco and uh, dried salmon called gawas. It's like jerky. And off we'd go. You know, you'd usually take a boat, get to a logging camp, ask for a ride up to a high level on their logging road system and then we'd get out and we'd punch through the timber into the alpines and there we go and spend you know sometimes weeks until it got too cold or we had to get back for fishing but that was always what we did and you know you knew jonah was out there and you didn't pay it no heed because you were brought up to always respect the jonah so if you heard tree breaks and it wasn't windy or even there's a little bit of breeze. You stopped, turned around and walked back where you just came from. Then you'd alter your course. because. And if you 
went to a clam beach. You jump off, even to this day, I'm going to go clam digging next week here in Canada. And as soon as I jump out of the boat in the daytime when it's daylight, I'm going to look around at the high tide mark for broken clam shells and cockle shells. And if I find any or I hear tree breaks or trees being shook, but it's usually the shells that tell you the broken shells, I'm going to turn around, go back to the boat, jump in it, and go a mile different direction and check that beach out. And if I don't see any broken shells, then I'm going to do my clam digging there that night. What the clam shells are is the Sasquatch, Jonah is telling you, we're harvesting shellfish at this beach right now. And so out of respect, you let them have that beach. You don't stay there. And if you do, all hell breaks loose. Things being thrown at you, boats being flipped over that are dried up on the beach while you're clam digging, you name it. There's all kinds of stories that we have, that incidents that took place when people were being disrespectful. So when we'd be up in the Alpines, and especially in uh, late June, he used to like going up there. So we'd go up into the Alpines and late June was the time where you had a lot of activity in the Alpines. Like Wayne would, he was FAS, fetal alcohol syndrome. So he was, you know, he was, I'll say it like it is, he was a simpleton. And all of a sudden he'd come back to the fire and he'd sit down beside me. And I'm like, what's wrong, Wayne? You're sitting beside me. Well, you're up there. I just saw two. I'm like, well, what should we do? Pack up camp and leave? Oh, no, I think we're okay. Just don't go too far, eh, tonight when you go pee. And the next day we'd get camp and we'd leave. And, you know, you'd always hear something or smell something that you knew they were paralleling you. And basically, I think they were just making sure we weren't doing anything stupid and disrespectful. And then, you know, we'd move over a ridge or something. And then Wayne would, oh, I think they're gone now. So when I was out in bush by myself, because as a native watchman, a lot of times I lived out in bush by myself when I was a uh, bear hunting guide for quite a few years, specializing in grizzly bears, coastal grizzly bears. You know, I'd be scouting on my own. And other times I just went to bush because I love it so much. And you'd hear something, smell something. Usually what I do is this, yo, weeksus, majos yech onaka. Hello, how are you doing? I don't know who you are, Sasquatch. And a couple of times you'd actually hear, <laughs> and then just them moving off. So it's all about respect. And that's why uh, a lot of people that are following me right now, seeing that I just basically launched on Todd Standing two weeks ago. It's because in him and his egomaniac character, he was proclaiming he was going to help these special forces people go kill a Sasquatch. Well, I don't support that. You know, you always show them respect, you know, and, you know, number one, if as soon as you start saying you're going to kill a Sasquatch and I'm going to go into this part of Alberta to do it, what you're saying is I have absolutely no respect for the indigenous native Indian people that live here and I'm going to go kill one of their most sacred creatures. They know they have lived their lived with in their homeland since the dawn of our creations so it's all about respect and even within our our community a sasquatch enthusiasts and investigators i never use researcher until that person shows they've pulled off a diane fossey jane goodall interaction with the big fellas and their family and then they become a researcher you have a subject to study right now we're all just speculative investigators trying to get that conclusive proof Tell us about another one of your encounters, because those are just fascinating. Um, 
The one I like best is putting a jig on a Sasquatch. Jig, putting a jig on something means turning the table, um, getting them, tricking them. So uh, uh, 2012, 2013, we were clearing brush in 2012 off our 250-acre Indian Reserve Island and off northeastern Vancouver Island with two tribe members. And I told him, we got Chonokas coming about. It's October now. Be wary. You know, you might want to go to the outhouse two at a time now. Uh, what about you? Oh, no, I got my 12-gauge. I don't need someone coming with me. And uh, so, you know, nothing really happened. We uh, had things thrown at us and sticks and that. But 2012, we started building these cabins that looked like traditional native-style longhouses made of red cedar and timber frame. And we had one built, and I knew we were being probed at the end of September. You know, you could see the salmonberry and slowberry bushes and ferns around our camp especially around our kitchen unit, opening up into tunnels. And of course, some of the salmonberry leaves are falling. And I'm telling them, come with me, you two. And I showed them, I said, you know, we're being probed. I said, one of those hairy buggers is watching us right now. They always got scouts on you. I said, come on, let's go look over here. And we're walking on the camp. And lo and behold, we had this huge tarp up with all of our, our generator and our compressor and uh, air tools and electric tools and lumber under this big tarp. And on the back of it, at the forage edge, I said, hey, grab that milk crate. We had a plastic two-foot by two-foot milk crate, and they brought it over. I said, look at all the grass. Look how pounded down it is right here at the edge. And I put the crate down, and I stood up. I said, what? I'm about, what, seven feet now, I guess? And I said, I'm looking over right where we sit at the picnic table at night playing cards and drinking tea, and I can see our kitchen from here in the front of where we work with all of our tools. I said, that bugger's been standing here. It's his observation deck when it's blowing northwest. Now come with me. I'll show you where there's probably another one for southeast wind. And I took him to the other side of the camp. And lo and behold, up on a rocky platform, like a little ledge cliff, there was another area that was the ferns were just pile pounded down where something was definitely sitting there on its butt, sitting there looking right down into our camp to all of the points where we sort of congregated during the breakfast and lunchtime and evening meal and just before dark when we went to our cabins. So they believed me that definitely something was going on. We found a track. And then a couple nights later, I'm standing on the front of the cabin that me and one of the crewmen are sleeping in because the other guy went away for the weekend. And my partner that was with me, Darcy, he was too scared to sleep in his cabin alone, so he dragged his mattress into my big cabin. Anyway, he's in there, and I'm out in the front porch having a cigarette, and it's drizzling, so I'm kind of trying to get a little bit of cover with the overhang of the front roof. And there's no wind, hardly, and all of a sudden, this alder branch comes flying horizontally and lands on the upper part of the beach. And I'm like, well, that's odd. It's blowing northwest. If anything falls, it should be pushed away from the camp, not coming out into the camp and on the beach. So I flicked my cigarette button. I skittered to the edge of the front of the cabin, and I jumped out sideways, spun 180, landed on my feet, and went, hey! Well, there at the edge of the bush, the entrance to our outhouse trail, is this what I saw was a juvenile Sasquatch, about a little over six feet tall, lanky like a teenager, and it just looked at me, and its eyes went wide, and it yelled, I yelled, I ran for the front door, and he turned and ran for the bush, and I ran in the cabin laughing away, and Darcy, he's like, you quit teasing the Sasquatches, you're going to get mad at us. I'm like, oh, never mind. I said, I was just horsing around having fun. He said, uh, so 
I'd seen it up close and I thought that oh, was pretty neat. Saw a juvenile. And a uh, few nights go, days go by and our garlic's going missing, our apples are going missing, and uh, it's uh, they're throwing sticks at Darcy and scaring him. So I'm like, okay, I got to end this. I got to put the jig on this. Sasquatch keeps, seems to be keeping the keep probing our camp like it gets dark and all of a sudden we could smell something and you could hear something we had a big roar at us one night that sure put us to bed fast and we had a non-native carpenter at the time and it kind of spooked him too and uh, so i thought okay enough's enough i gotta make a stand here that i'm the big goon on this island not them so i put my camo on just as it's getting dark i put my 12 gauge i think it was or my 338 out the window and uh open the window and I'm climbing out. Well, Darcy looks at me, he goes, what are you doing? He reaches for the 3030. I said, don't you touch that 3030. Don't you even do anything or shoot anything until you see me and I tell you where to shoot. I said, I'm going to go scare that Sasquatch. And I climbed out the window and on my belly, I crawled. But because we'd been doing cleanup, docking alder trees down and s small evergreens and leaves, it's, you know, we're building a tourist operation, so it's got to look tidy. So, you know, decades of windfall on the ground and that we're cleaning up. We piled them in big piles waiting for the late October, early November monsoons to come. And I strategically piled this pile of leaves at the edge inside the trail and in the, inside the forest wall leading to our outhouse in the interior of the island. Well, I crawl in behind all these berms in the bushes and using ferns as cover and I'm being quiet. You know, I remember I'm a hunter bushman, so when I go quiet, I go quiet. And I get to the leaves and I climb into it by, with my feet first and I pull the leaves up over my head and everything. So just under my baseball cap and pile of leaves, I'm looking across the trail into the forest opening. And, you know, the alder trees and the hemlock trees. And I can see pretty good because it's kind of spaced out. We removed quite a bit of the trees the year before and that, that early summer so they wouldn't fall on the cabins after we built them when they got bigger but anyway i'm watching and sure enough you can see the shadow coming down as just as it's almost getting dark and then it gets closer and closer and it's looking at the back of the cabins and it's using the tr little trees and bushes as cover and it comes right out now this trail leading to the outhouse in the interior of the island is an old skitter trail so it's didn't have logging trucks on it but skitter machines back in 1927 when they logged it so it's about, I guess, maybe eight feet wide, and it's got a big dirt berm about four to five feet on either side, and I'm against one of the berms on the west side with the leaves hidden, and the Sasquatch is walking through the forest, and all of a sudden that grabs this alder tree with its left hand, and it's looking at the back of my cabin, and it leans into the berm, putting its right foot down into the trail, and you can see the alder tree bending, you know, and it's using that as support. Well, it's right foot is no more than probably six feet from my feet. And as he's coming down, coming down, all of a sudden I pop out of the leaves. Hey, what are you doing? And that Sasquatch just looked at me. Pulled that alder tree, jumped up on the bank. The alder tree snaps back and forth. Leaves are falling. I'm just killing myself laughing. And the Sasquatch turns around, looks at me. Rah! Ah, turns and he just goes like a freight train through the bushes and I'm laughing away. I crawl out of leaves. 
go to the cabin, and when I get to the door, there's Darcy with a 30-30 with his eyes all bug-eyed. And I'm like, don't worry about it. I don't think we'll be bothered by the Sasquatch no more. I scared the living bejesus out of him. He's like, oh, you're going to get them mad at us. But we went to sleep. Nothing bothered us. But that was one of my best encounters with them, putting a jig on him. Uh, I think that's an awesome story. I love it. Um, going a little different direction with them, um, how do you guys, how do the native people deal with, um, or I should ask, I'm being a little, I'm making an assumption, but do they ever attack and harm and maybe even kill people? And if well, so, yeah. how do you deal with that? You just don't be stupid. Don't disrespect them. You know, as soon as you disrespect them, they're going to pop your head off. And, you know, our people, they're uh, take the misbehaving children. Women get taken, hunters go missing. It's all about respect. They're tree knocking, breaking trees, shaking trees, pushing dead trees down to you, throwing rocks at you, bluff charging you, chest pounding like a gorilla. They're telling you, I don't want you here, human. Get the hell out of here. Well, you heed that warning and get out of there. If you don't, you go missing. And there's so many accounts to that. And, you know, like me, I lived in Bush for decades. That's why I laugh sometimes when I read some of the comments in groups where people don't think I can see them, like the critical thinking of Bigfoot and where they're backstabbing and belittling the hell out of Tom Seawood. I just roll my eyes and shake my head and go, you know, I've forgotten more about Bush than these poor fellers will ever know. And here they are passing judgment upon me. Come walk a day in my moccasins. And it's like I do with people that are disrespectful with Sasquatch or they're disrespectful and being such a... Uh, skeptic that they're being militant I say guess what you find your way to Campbell River British Columbia you just fought on a free 10 or two week trip with this Indian guy to take you in to live like a Sasquatch we're bringing no food and we're going to live like Sasquatches and I'll have a gun and we'll have fishing gear and lots of tobacco to smoke and coffee to drink but now that you've disrespected me so much I'm going to give you a gift you come walk two weeks or 10 days in my moccasins beside me and you know what? I've never had anyone take me up on that offer yet. And what it's all about is respect. We have to be respectful of Sasquatch. And the skeptics need to be respectful of we that believe in Sasquatch, especially the indigenous people. You know, uh, like since people get disrespectful, I say, what are you saying that hundreds of thousands of my ancestors are comp complete BSers and told didn't tell the truth? And that's indicative of every tribe in North America. You know, be careful what you say. You know, it's uh, there's a reason why the native people talk about the cannibals of the forest, the mountain devils and so forth. We know how far you can go with a Sasquatch. Not too far. You push them a little bit, they're going to push back hard. And that's when you get yourself end up becoming missing. Will and I have talked about that when people are, you know, uh, very dogmatic and laughing and said, oh, they don't exist. Um, I, I, I want to, I haven't actually done it, but I want to say, so what are you doing tonight? Yeah, <laughs> basically. No, it's a lot of fun. Like, you know, and I just concentrated on the ones that are positive, you know, the ones that want to believe or uh, are true believers, you know, and it's, it's, it's nice to know that in 2020 that I can, push a button on my cell phone in front of me and talk to someone in Western Australia just that fast. Or I'll be told that they're 
couple weeks from now, an asteroid the size of a bus is going to go between the moon and Earth. It's nice to know that we have that ability, that knowledge. But at the same turn, isn't it nice to know that there's something out there we haven't found yet and possibly five or six different maybe subspecies or whatever of them on North America alone. Then you got the Yowie, the Orang Pendek, the Almas, the Almasadi, the Yeti. You know, isn't it grand to know that in this modern day, we still have something we're trying to find out if they exist or not? Yeah, I think it is. Absolutely. Um, and I think we got enough time. If you have another story, we'd love to hear another one of your uh, encounter stories. So we were uh, 2000 and early 2000s. I built uh, cabins that looked like native big houses. This is the first cabins I built, the ones I own, not my tribes. And I moved them because they're panaboat. I took them apart and I moved them to just north of Sayward on eastern Vancouver Island. And we were doing a sea kayak with the orcas operation there for uh, 2004 through to 2006. And uh, 2006, I had a big charter coming, quite a few people and a lot of big tides had washed in a lot of logs. And for the people that aren't, that are listening, that aren't from the Pacific Northwest coast, our logs, and they come on the beach, especially at this beach, some of them are leftovers from the original logging in the early 1900s. So some of the root balls and logs on my beach are like six, seven feet in diameter. And then you get these larger ones, two, three feet in diameter, and all these pecker poles coming in. Well, the sand and pea gravel where my kayak should go are all covered. So I told my crew, let's go in there. And uh, I'll use the chainsaw as the tide's rising because it's going to be a huge high tide just before dark. And we'll cut the wood up. And then when high tide comes, we'll push them out with uh, pike poles, they're called, uh, for logging. And uh, use the tour boat to tow them out if we have to clear the beach for the kayaks so we get down there in the after late afternoon and just before evening i go through two tanks of gas on my largest husqvarna largest husqvarna chainsaw they make and i'm sweating and i'm tired so i run out of gas and i pretty much cleared everything so i put the saw down and i say hey throw me a pepsi and they throw me a pepsi out of the cabin when the young workers and four of us are there two young guys and uh, my sister came in to visit 10 years younger and they I took half the Pepsi down and I sat down in the chair and I wasn't there for three minutes when all of a sudden just tree, two trees started shaking like a spook movie where you see something, a demon or whatever, shaking and vibrating. This is what they were doing. So I look at my dog. It's a Golden Lab cross named Land Claims Treaties Now. Everywhere he lifted his leg, us Indians were claiming it back. But anyway, I go, Landy, get it. He runs up the rock wall beside my cookhouse and he looks behind these two shaking trees that are both five inches in diameter and he just ping springs off the rock wall 180s in the air lands five feet six feet lower and he's just this blonde golden lab cross with his tail between his legs streaking by me now this is a bush dog six years old and he was taught bush he's a was a great hunting dog and he also he jumps in the dinghy the trees are still shaking and then this big boulder probably the size of a dining room table for four people comes tumbling down the rock wall well if that don't get your attention so i just like jesus so i look at the one crewman who's in the cookhouse give me my gun he goes your gun's out on the boat i had my 32 foot 12 passenger tour boat at anchor and i'm like well give me a machete or an axe 
So he's doing that, and I'm looking around at these trees shaking right away. Bush knowledge, you know, it's don't just look at the what's trying to distract you, so to speak. So I turn my head and start looking to the right, which is behind the cookhouse and the wall of timber. And I lock eyes with this big SOB. Like he, we measured the next day where you're standing because we found his footprints where he was in between these two cedar trees that were about 30 feet high. And this SOB Sasquatch man, he was seven foot four. And me and him are eye locked. And I'm just looking at him like, now what do I do? And I'm thinking, and all of a sudden he just leans forward towards me and he just makes this huge tooth grimace see the wrinkles and tendons and muscle on his upper body and he just gives me this look of hate and i'm just like where's that machete and all of a sudden he's here's your axe or machete and he gave it to me and i'm backing up and i look at my sister i'm like get in that dinghy go now well she turns and she runs like remember i just finished cutting all kinds of logs up and branches and driftwood she looked like Jesus Christ trying to walk on water, but it was all driftwood. And I'm like, slow down. You're going to break your hip, for God's sakes. And she's freaked right out. And so I get tell Hugo and uh, the other guys, you guys get in the other dinghy. We're getting out to that boat now. And they know from my training, when I give you an order and it sounds like an emergency, don't you dare second guess me. You just damn do it. And what, they're going for the other dinghy now. So both dinghies, my sister starts pulling the line that's going from my anchored tour boat to the beach to keep its bow straight into the waves coming in because it's blowing like 35 northwest. She pulls real hard and we're in a, like a nine foot duck punt rectangle. She just about flips it over and there's me, her and the land claims in there. And I'm like, slow down, you're going to flip us. Quit being so freaked out, not be afraid of we get to the towards the swim grid and we're about six feet away and land claims launches and lands half in the water, almost knocks the wind out of him. He hit so hard with his chest on the swim grid. Nails scrape and he clambers on the boat, runs through the open door. I get the boat beside us and I walk inside to go grab my 338. And there's mighty bush dog Landy shivering away and cowering up in the forecastle on a four peak of the boat. I grab the gun case, walk on deck, open it up go out and then you heard that big rah, big screaming and to the left of the camp another alder tree sorry another tree which was an alder one starts to shake like you wouldn't believe and leaves are coming down it was being shook so hard you know this is end of september so the leaves are getting loose and i'm like jesus these things don't want us here so i'm like hey you guys cut the lines and make sure all the lines anchor line and everything's away from the boat because we're on a mooring voice and we're getting out of here my sister's crying and I get inside and I fire up both motors. I look out my side port window and there's Hugo. I try to untie a sideline that goes to the beach. And he's crying away. He's a skinny little Dutch boy. And I'm like, oh, for God's sakes. And I was like, just make throw that line far so it don't get in my wheel. And I walk out on the back deck again and I could hear them still yelling, the Sasquatch up by my cookhouse. So I let three 338s in the air. I didn't point at them. And I just yelled at him, I'll be back. This is my place. You might have won tonight, but I will be back. And I jumped in the boat, kicked her in gear, and <clears throat> I wanted to go around the corner to where this abandoned log landing was with this big ship that was a breakwater. I was just blowing 35 northwest, big ebb tide, and this place is notorious for tide rips, so it's like nasty. And 
my sister like no way no way we're not staying there and i'm like look it's not safe for me to go back to port there's a big tide rip out there with this ebb tide and this big wind i said it'll punch our windows through i said it's not safe so i get out in the mid channel and i'm trying to think and i'm heading across channel to this dock in the little community called port neville and all of a sudden we come on top like we're surfing three quarter in these waves and all of a sudden we come on top of this big green one and I'd look at my sister. I said, look out, how deep's your ditch? And she looks out her window and she looks back at me and she looked like she saw another Sasquatch. I'm like, yeah, the waves are getting bigger. Now look at Sayward where we're supposed to go. The waves are four times as big. That's why we're not going there. So we made it into Port Neville and uh, she didn't say anything anymore about going to Sayward because it was so rough. I told her the wind to be down in the morning and we can go there. And uh, we stayed in Port Neville that night and... Um, you know, I'll never forget, though, that they showed so much aggression. And I don't know what set them off. Like, on all honesty, the only thing I can think that set them off was I had taken their area over. And it wasn't until, you know, I thought like that. And then I started to piece the evidence together of why. And it's the reason why is it's where my kayak camp is. Now we call it Sasquatch Investigation Camp. Because we still have it and we do investigations out there throughout the year and uh i looked at it and right across it's the narrowest swimming area from vancouver island to a mainland peninsula once you get to that mainland peninsula you walk up the old logging road through a saddle between two small mountains which is low ground easy climbing and you come out in boogie bay which is filled with cockles the favorite food of sasquatch and then from there they can swim and island hop and rock hop all through the broughton archipelago a labyrinth of hundreds of islands which is the wintering ground of sasquatches because of all the shellfish beds and then behind my camp we have so much activity because i firmly believe that there's a scout always present we're finding that we have year-round Sasquatch activity there. The main reason is because it's 25 minutes off the, off the highway, which is a, the highway itself where you turn off is the middle of Timbuk nowhere. And, uh, you know, it takes about half an hour to get to the closest community. And it's all forest. And then 25 minutes down this bumpy logging road that they haven't been logging on in years. And you come out at my camp. Well, it's out in the middle of Timbuk nowhere close to the shellfish beds across channel and high activity. And we've had so many, you know, sightings down there. You know, I've had two paying clients on Sasquatch expeditions, one of them a doctor and another a professor of anthropology that have seen Sasquatches within 40 yards at that camp. So it's, you know, an area that we, we'd like to study there more. Right now, we couldn't get in there for the last month and a half because of snow. But, you know, it's for the people listening. I do expeditions. You know, the best thing is just go to Facebook group Sasquatch Island and uh, you'll see all my contacts and the posts and different things. I do have a website, SasquatchIsland.com, but uh, I don't really use it that much. But it's got my email contacts on there. But the best thing is, uh, you know, just keep in touch with me, Sasquatch Island YouTube channel. I'm at the conferences and uh you want to have a close encounter of the hairy kind. I used to be a guide for hunters for grizzly bears for years and uh, bear watching guide, whale watching guide, fishing guide. It'll be smarter. Go charter an Indian to go take you looking for a Sasquatch. And chances are you come with me long enough, you're going to see one or hear one or smell one.
Tom, real Tom, quick, real I want to ask you about their swimming. Uh, that's something we've talked about quite a bit. And, you know, you talk about those islands. There's a place here in Oregon where there's it's, it's a river, but there's just dozens and dozens of these little islands that uh, only became exposed when a forest fire came through and kind of burned things up. But what are your uh, do you have any any um, I, I should say sightings or what what are your thoughts about them swimming? Oh, they swim like frogs. It's in John Green's book, that uh, Sasquatch Among Us or whatever. There's uh, uh, an encounter in there. I remember reading it as a young teenager about how this guy saw this putting its arms out and pulling sideways and its legs would come up and kick back like a frog. And I've done numerous interviews with uh, commercial fishermen and native Indians here in coastal British Columbia and even up in uh, Northwest Territories of Canada and the Yukon. And they say the same thing. They swim like that. They swim like a, like a frog swim, but they move like a seal. That's the thing. I interviewed a cousin who was a commercial fisherman who was sitting on a boat at anchor and uh, he heard something coming down the bush and through the slough bushes, which make a lot of noise. Grab a plastic tarp and shake it. That's what it sounds like when you walk through slough leaves on the Pacific Northwest. And all of a sudden this big Sasquatch walked out look towards him on the bow of the boat carving a native chunk uh, native art out of wood and uh just turned and walked into the water and did that exact swimming posture and he said it was like a seal and it swam across the channel and walked up the beach and disappeared in the forest oh that's yeah well that's uh we got a spot here in oregon between oregon and washington on the columbia where they've been reported the locals see them frequently just swimming across, you know, the Columbia River, and that's that's not a creek. <laughs> it's a yeah. substantial substantial body of water as far as rivers go. And, you know, for uh, the ones that are listening that are want to find Sasquatch, what you just said there about the river, well, you got riverbanks, sandbars, uh, maybe some farm fields around there with opening areas. You know, it's Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin came up spades with a paddy and the forest, which I call the yarn basket, the wool, steel wool of North America. I call it something else, but I'm not going to do it on air. But anyway, <laughs> um, stay out of there. You know, it's try to find Sasquatch in there next to impossible. Get out onto the beaches, shellfish and during the wintertime. That's where probably we're going to get it. I've used the fleur and recorded the Sasquatch on a beach in the wintertime and with the uh, you know, 16 minutes of blob squatch flur image, but we got a big bipedal out there at low tide, half tide rising, I mean. And I've seen it my life out in bush. You know, when I got together with Peggy here in Kent, Washington in 2008, you know, it took a while to get this Sasquatch out of the bush. You know, finally, about three, four years later, she's like, maybe you should come spend some time in Kent, Washington. I'm like, yeah, okay. And, you know, I came down here and I kid you not, I was feral. Uh, living in the bush almost basically and and when i came down here she introduced me to finding bigfoot and i just looked at her and i'm like really if they exist maybe they exist that girl there renee saying that she's a skeptic come on now sasquatch is like white animals and bears and whales and birds you spend enough time in bush you'll see a white something you spend enough time in bush you're gonna have see a sasquatch hear it or smell it for sure and 
that's when she, you know, because I was getting mad at books I was reading and TV shows and because they pronounced me as a cockatoodle and my Sasquatch was Bukwes. So I'm like, what are they talking about? I ain't a cockatoodle. I'm a cockwalkywalk. And Jonah is our Sasquatch, not Bukwes. Bukwes is a little hair-covered spiritual creature. And anyway, I'm using this 56, almost 57-now-year-old Bushman hunting guide, commercial fisherman, lived out in bush because I hated the concrete world for decades. And my knowledge about Sasquatch, whether it be my perspectives, my beliefs, my encounters, what I've gathered from other people, I'm sharing with all on Sasquatch Island. So hopefully I will help increase your odds coming up spades with the Sasquatch and getting that really good video, pictures, vocalizations, recorded tracks, or hopefully that Diane Fossey, Jane Goodall interaction. So that's what my quest is now is, you know, don't be afraid to get a hold of me. I'll go to Sasquatch Island, all my emails there and everything. I'm sure you guys are going to post it on this podcast. And, uh, you know, I'm here in Kent, Washington most of the time. I'll go out investigating with you, too. I'll be in Kelso this weekend. So, Well, you got to do it. Listen, Tom, we have got to have you back on. I, I got to say it's just a thousand percent pleasure uh, listening to you and uh, having you on the show. Um, my pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Tom. As I'm sitting here painting a big native Bigfoot. <laughs> well, you got to send us a picture of it. I want to see it. Oh, I posted it today. They're actually cut out wood of Bigfoots. I put native designs on. And what they are is you put them on your wall or whatever as a keepsake. But I call them the foot of fames. And it's for you to bring to. So hopefully someone will buy it at Kelso, the floor I made. You know, you, you said something interesting about having people go out and see one of these things. And you know what the most important thing is about seeing and having an encounter with a Bigfoot? It's What's being that? able to go home. <laughs> <laughs> Not ending up a steaming coiler in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Tom, we got to have you back. So, Oh, anytime. Uh, all right. We're going to hold you to it, okay? Okay. It's been a pleasure. And uh, all right. don't forget so, to go to Facebook groups, Sasquatch Island. Any pictures you need for your podcast or whatever, pull them off. All right. Thank I you, Tom. Do that. Really appreciate Stay it. Stay on the line afterwards. We're we'll, going to chat with you a little bit. And to everyone out there, halakulisla. Go in peace. In Bigfoot history, near Albany, Oregon, 1959-60, the Oregon Journal, August 16, 1963, carried an account by Keith Sosby of activities of the Cosner-like monster. Three years ago, a hairy, seven-foot monster suddenly appeared in the lonely woods about Cosner Lake, five miles south of Albany. Late one evening on a lonely farm, a woman heard a beating on her living room window that overlooks the lake. They were strange rhythmic tappings, not unlike code. She parted the curtains, and there was the monster pressing its hand against the pane. The fingers were not unlike those of a human, except they were twice as large. With incredible speed, it vanished into the night. At twilight, a mint farmer was leaving his load at the mint press when he caught sight of a creature standing near his truck at the edge of a clearing. The frightened farmer took off in a hurry, scattering a trail of mint leaves along the road. The narrow road to Cosner Lake is rendezvous for teenagers during late hours. One evening, the monster joined the group. Leaping from the shadow of a deep gully, the thing stood fully seven feet tall in the ghostly moonlight. Petrified, mingled horror and curiosity, the young people sat motionless in their car. Suddenly, the apparition took a tremendous leap over the gully 
and it slipped through a tangle of brush. It moved, they said, faster than any known animal. Those who saw the monster scoffed at the theory that the creature hiding in the desolate swamp was a wild man. It took tremendous leaps that no human body could survive. One farmer reported the big-footed creature loped beside his speeding trucks peering at him through the window as though consumed by curiosity. Accounts of this creature's activities were published in the Benton County Herald, Corvallis, August 11 and 18, 1960, naming seven young people who had seen it, one claiming to have shot at it with a 30-06. Chuck Edmonds, now of Ashland, Oregon, interviewed many of those involved and told me he considered the reports reliable. Bob Titmus also talked to some of them and was doubtful. I have not looked in the episode myself. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Tom, you want to start off with questions? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just say real quick, folks, if you enjoy the show, just click the like and subscribe button. And if you want to support us, you can do so. There's a link in the description for our Patreon. All right. We've got Fred in Okinawa. And Fred, always welcome your questions. They're great questions. Um He's asking, he goes, I have a question. Will, I, I think I know your take on it. I'll throw mine in and then I'll ask for yours. He says, I have a question. What's your take on the legend of Port Chatham Padlock or Port Chatham Portlock, Alaska? And just for <clears throat> the background, um, this, is, this was a cannery town up in Alaska, Port Chatham. And everybody vanished. They just left in mass and i believe it would have been in the late 30s when that happened but the the history of the town is not only did everybody just rapidly just they're gone but they had problems where they would find uh some of the town townspeople their bodies would be mutilated torn to pieces and it wasn't attributable to Bears it wasn't it wasn't that sort of thing. There, it sounded like they had just been dismembered. Uh, well, we've talked about being dismembered without a use of tools. So, you know, people had been uh, and they, you know, were torn to pieces, which is pretty unnerving when you run into that, especially if it's somebody you know. And you could be next. That's unnerving. But also, they did see these creatures around quite a bit. So, yeah. It, it is a, a real thing, and they did, uh, there was a rapid, very rapid, uh, I guess, evacuation of the town. They just disappeared. The only thing I don't know is what happened to the townspeople. You know, did I, I, I haven't seen any discussion of, you know, where somebody got a hold of them later on and say, hey, what happened? So, I don't know. Will, what's what's your take on this? Well, I, I read a little bit on that. There was some Bigfoot stuff going on, supposedly. And um, I, I don't think that was the reason. There were a number of reasons that people have been given uh, for the, the pot town being evacuated. And I think it was over time. It wasn't like all at once. Um, you know, so I'm sure, you know, some of it was probably due to 
the Sasquatch activity now. When we talked to Tom in the previous segment, he, you know, confirmed some stuff that we knew about, you know, when the Sasquatches don't want you in an area, they can get rather nasty, and you should really heed those warnings. So um, these things could have been going on there, and people didn't heed them. So, you know, we, we know about the results according to these stories. Uh, but there were other reasons, you know, more mundane reasons given for people leaving the area. And that's what I know. Well, that's interesting. I, uh, that was the first that I heard that there was some, uh, you know, more mundane reasons and that it wasn't just a, a mass evacuation. So, but there was some, you're saying there was some Bigfoot activity there as well. Yeah, correct. At least that's what, that's what I've read. But Will, let me ask you: Were there a lot of newspaper reports about these things? I have no idea. I don't really know. You know what was reported, what wasn't reported. And Tommy brought up a good point: Has anybody ever gone and found any of the people who left the area and talked to them directly to find out? Well, what was the reason you left? What's the reason other people left that you know of? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, because a lot of times these things don't get reported on uh, fully and we don't know all the the answers well and again if that was you know the 1930s or 40s and, and I don't remember, exact, remember the exact time period but I think it was around that time Tom um, that, that kind of thing probably wouldn't have been reported anyway yeah that's right and, and that was my understanding was I think it went up to the beginning of World War II is when it was uh, evacuated. And I suppose it's a mystery because it's essentially a ghost town, and ghost towns are always kind of mysterious for that reason, and they're, they're interesting. So uh, you can certainly see how some lore would get attached to that over time. And there seemed to be, at least you know, from some of the things written, there was a fair amount of bad luck attached to the place. And I think that may have been one of the contributing factors to people leaving. They felt it was a very unlucky place. You know, things would happen, accidents, etc. So, Will, it was uh, superstition, almost? Yeah, probably. I mean, you know, it was just, just the kind of things that were happening. You know, things that are you can look it up and find the things that were said about what went on there. And, uh, and it could have been, you know, even, you know, businesses failing and things like that, that it was just deemed an unlucky place and even afterwards people that have gone there have had mishaps yeah so so maybe they they knew that it was a kind of a bad place to be in yeah i'm sure i'm sure the locals you know if they weren't doing well then they said it's time to go you know i'm just gonna talking about bad luck uh tom had mentioned that they had an encounter one of their encounters with bigfoot and they're they're pointing their weapons at it. Remember their rifles. Mm-hmm. And then somebody came up and said, "Oh no 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 no! It's it's bad luck to shoot one of these things." And I got to thinking this morning. Well, yeah, it might be, but you know what? If you're the Bigfoot and you get shot, that's kind of bad luck for you too. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was there was some native saying that uh, or sayings that if you it used to be even even to the point with some if you were to look one in the eyes. Um, that you and family members would die within a certain time period. Well, you know, there could be some truth to that. Um, If you and your family members are right there in front of it at that moment, that time period could be very short. Could be very short. Yeah, seconds. (laughs) 
Well, Tom or Brian, what do we have for questions from you? Okay, so uh, one of the questions that, that I have is that how many of these creatures do you think that are dis like disabled? I don't mean like disabled like in, like a wheelchair or anything like that, but I mean like like have foot injuries or arm injuries or things like that because they do live a long time from what we know. You know, you made me think of something there for a moment. <laughs> Picturing a Bigfoot in a wheelchair. Number one, who would be the manufacturer of that wheelchair? <laughs> yeah. And would and would it have to be an all-terrain wheelchair? <laughs> Sorry, my mind just kind of wandered off there for a moment. Um, <laughs> you know, there I have casts of tracks that have deformities you know it's not something that's unheard of we don't see perfect tracks all the time sometimes there are deformities so uh, like with anything in nature you know mishaps do occur probably when they're young even in terms i suppose um you know if they were to get near and not so much these days but in the past where uh human trappers would have you know these spring-loaded traps out there and if they happened into something like that it could be bad news you know for a foot but um yeah I, I don't know what the percentage is but i suppose the same as any other species out there yeah i'm going to weigh in on this um i had a uh, a veterinarian tell me one time that uh cats house cats because of their heritage to being wild cats at one point will conceal their pain they can have considerable amount of pain and they will not show it because in the wild that's going to be a trigger for other animals to see that you're weak and, and this carries over into all wild animals that if they have an injury they tough it up they just you know you don't you you uh you don't let them see a sweat and that's right, cause, a survival cause mechanism because what do predators look for Young and weak. Right. Those are the easy targets. So the point there is if you're out researching Bigfoot, you want to get somebody who's slower than you, preferably younger and weaker. <laughs> oh, boy. But, but Just that, saying. Just know, saying. Tom, Tom, that's that's interesting. Now. I never, I mean, I, I, I thought of that before, but that that's true that if you are weak in the wild you want to kind of hide that almost to kind of yeah and that's why that's why it's tough for and my vet was telling me that's why it was difficult to diagnose problems sometimes with cats because they can be incredibly uh injured and they won't they don't they just don't let on except maybe they don't eat or something like that So, food for thought. Um, I got a question. Danny wants to know. He says, Will, you said most Bigfoot turn a redder, browner shade as they age, and that they all come with an original uh, color of black. And what is the youngest Bigfoot you know of not to be black? This relates to the two different sightings. Uh, with two different colors, two different guys, two weeks, 200 yards apart. Uh, I'm not sure. I guess he maybe maybe he had somebody, I don't know if it's a hypothetical or an actual situation, but anyway, going back to the, generally speaking, 
the younger ones are black, and as they age, uh, they turn to a that kind of auburn reddish color. The only ones I know of, and it's been uniform uh, from people of, that, that I've talked to that have seen juveniles are always black. I've never talked to anyone that maybe you know maybe they said dark brown, but you know it, it really depends on circumstances and lighting. You know, and maybe the black looks like dark brown, and, or it is dark brown in, in the light, but I don't think there's, based on the people I've talked to, any other variations than those. Well, and another point of that is typically your sightings are very brief, and then also how do you know that what you're looking at as a juvenile, what, what unless you have uh, prior experience with this, you know, I think it's usually uh, a no shucks moment when you see one of these things. So uh, it's a good question, Danny. I just don't know that, um, you know, what's the youngest one that, that is uh, red color? Hard to say. Yeah, I suppose it depends on maturity and, you know, it's going to be a variable between individuals, you know, which ones that mature a little faster. Now, the growth rates are faster than in humans, but uh, so I, I don't I have no idea. Never heard of anyone, uh, or haven't talked to anyone. Well, know, going to your one. encounter, Will, what uh, were you um, being very studious and studying these creatures when they're staying in front of you? And going, oh heck hmm. no! I was more worried about my hide. <laughs> 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 that was my priority. Was you know it was an oh crap moment. How do I get out of this? <laughs> And, and, you know, you get that if they're 50 yards, 60 yards away, and you're in the same woods as them, and you see it, like, oh, I'm in the same proximity of, the, of this thing. I, you know, I'm not worried about the color so much. You know, Tom brought up, you know, we were talking to him, a good point. Um, you know, they let you know when they don't want you there. I kind of look back, looking back at my own situation, I think that was probably the right move. Had I stayed any longer after the second one came over, I'm sure they would have, you know, given me a very clear indication they didn't want me there. But my leaving quickly, like I did, probably, um, you know, satisfied what they wanted. You know, Will, can I ask you a question? I, I, I'm sure I've, we've probably talked about this before, but in that situation, do you think that they were trying to get you? like you and your family out of that area or no, no, that are just trying to like, uh, just go through the, the, the area to get food. No, they were, they were just coming through. I mean, our barn was right there. The open side was exposed to that wood line. And I, Tom, I sent you pictures from that time period of, of our, our place. there. the one, only ones I have left, but it shows where the barn was and how close the tree line was to that. So, I mean, it's pretty obvious that's what they were coming up there for. And the apple trees are right out there, too. Yeah. So they were going to get out of there, basically, though, after that. Did the creatures leave? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they know, moved on north again. I think it was interesting because you did have those apple trees. So you kind of had a, you know, you had an early, uh, uh, early harvest and then you had a winter harvest mm -hmm. for those apples. And I just bet dimes of dollars that had a lot to do with why they're there. Food. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. 
and sweet, tasty food, you know. Oh, so. yeah. And in, abund- in abundance, those trees were almost 100 years old, so they, they were they produced, you know, prolifically. You know, it cracks me up, the uh, account that where your mom said, hey, look at, look at the cows, what, look at what they're doing. Um, staring at the tree line, and didn't you say the tree line was, there's something rustling the trees? Or Oh, not just rustling, it was thrashing violently the brush and i sent you that picture too from that t- that summer right and you, and you can see how thick that brush was there was no way you could see what was doing it you know because it was just inside uh, it was like a jungle back there and that was that was the place we lived before um we were in graham so oh okay but it was and the cows four. are just sitting there looking they're like oh, they were, like they were in Bessie's the barn not coming out there. they were in the barn hiding is what they were doing <laughs> that was that was their refuge didn't you say, though, that there was, like, a big bull that was just, like, the meanest son of a bee that you could imagine? And even he was, like, like terrified. Oh, all of them were in the barn. All of them were in there with their heads poking out, ears out. And they shouldn't have been, they shouldn't have been up in that part of the 40 acres that day. They, they should have been way out. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember one time as a teenager, had a job building fences, and we were up in the uh, Coast Range, and we were building it for the railroad. And, uh, you know, we had to walk through an area where acres and acres is a dairy farm, so it was just all these cows. You had to walk through the cows, and they'd all gather around you, and, you're, you've, you know, you're carrying all this fencing equipment and tools, and you're like, get out of here, leave me alone. And one night we were, cause you had had to camp out, you know, you're building a fence, so just made sense not to go back to town. And one night, just as the train went by, we heard this loud scream, didn't know what it was. So uh, the guy who owned the, co- the fence building company said, oh, that was probably a cougar. And, but you no know, looking back now, I kind of wonder, <laughs> yep, hindsight. You know, hindsight. Yep, yep. You no, know, Tom. Like, this is kind of a. I, I know we. This show is about Will, kind of, but about you. Like, when did you start to learn about this creature, and when did you become convinced? I mean, you you just talked about that story, but was that the first time that you became convinced that this? No, was- not at all. No, I didn't even have an interest in the topic. It it honestly wasn't until I didn't really get an interest in this till around 2016 and because I'd kind of gone back and forth I mean there's, let's face it there's not a whole lot of good solid information out there especially on the internet for this topic so uh, it wasn't until 2016 I sort of think I think these things are probably real there's enough evidence out there and 2017 is when I had my first encounter I couldn't make sense of it. And two weeks later, I wrote Will, and that's kind of where this all got started. And then you saw that handprint on your on your car, right? Yeah, and that was quite a bit afterwards. Uh, and I didn't know what to think of it. I mean, that was there was zero indication. This is what's interesting. There was zero indication. There's no sounds, no smells, no evidence, nothing whatsoever that the creatures were around but we were out in the wilderness and i just come back and there's this massive handprint on the side of the 
truck on the truck door and it wasn't in an area where uh you know anybody there was just my friend his wife and myself and it wasn't any of us who did it so it's like i didn't say a word i just looked at it i took a picture of it i was like what the heck and i look it is hot and dusty so and it, it couldn't have been a uh, like a human handprint it was huge right yeah, it, it was massive. Yeah, it was huge. I mean, it covered, I would say, 12 inches, 12, 13 inches. So, I don't, I don't know. Will, do you know anybody with a hand that big? <laughs> no, and I, I do have a hand a cast of a Sasquatch handprint that's about that size. Okay, and I, I remember I showed it to you, um, and you said that you had heard of this. You know, this is. Oh yeah, not unheard of behavior. Not not that unusual. I have photographs of several handprints on vehicles like that. Yeah, and here's I think the takeaway point for me is, you can be within proximity of these things, and there is you know no indication, zero information, zero, you know it's not like, it's not even like any other wild creature in the wilderness. There's, there they can be literally. 20, 30 feet away, and you won't know it. You know, and, also, and what's a, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, what's important about that is for the skeptics is that they say, well, I've never seen one. Yeah, but, you know, they, they, there's a they've good chance you. they've seen you. Yes. <laughs> and you didn't know it. No, I was thinking about, you know, all the different people that have had them touch their windows and their cars like that. It kind of makes me think you go to the food counter, or, you know, where food's under the glass. <laughs> Right. Well, and sorry, really? in one of the no, moods no, no, today. That's a good one. Yeah, they're they're just ch- and let's face it, everything in the wilderness. If you see a deer, you see a bear, and you see any kind of wildlife, even squirrels and birds, I can predict with ninety eight percent accuracy what their activity was at the time. They're looking for food, and these yeah. creatures aren't going to be any different. I've been actually out camping. And I remember we were sitting around in our chairs one day, had a fire going, just relaxing, right? And a deer come walking right, I mean, I could have reached out and touched the deer, come right into the camp. You know, that's not often that that happens, but occasionally something like that does. They come checking around and see what's going on. And That is, you know, that's one of those encounters that I'm not sure I want because what's associated you know, there's so many times where people have had a deer come up right next to them or an elk, and then they find out why, because there's a Bigfoot right behind it. Yeah, this case, I, I think the deer was, deer was pretty casual. It was pretty relaxed. I think it just wasn't real afraid of people, you know. That's wild. Well, Will, do you think that it was because it was not in the hunting time? No, uh, it was in it was in an area where there isn't any hunting. So. Well, I mean, like the time of day. Like, do you think that? Oh, well, it thinks that it's night, nighttime, and it think it it can come up to you. Oh no, this was midday. <laughs> it was the middle oh, of the day. Oh, oh okay, okay. I'm yeah. sorry. And it was just it was just casually wandering along. It'd take a bite of a leaf here and then something there, and it was it was pretty casual as it was just moving along. That is kind of a good point, though, because I've been in that the same area where the handprint was during hunting season, 
and it's a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah, depends on the, the area gear. you're in. Yeah, I, I've seen, you know, the hunters are there, and I, you know, I I used to hunt, and then you'd see the deer. One of them would poke its head out of the brush, look up and down both sides of the road, <laughs> and then you see three or four of them zip across the road. They're very cagey during mm-hmm. hunting season. They know what's going on. Sure, they're not stupid. Well, and I hate to have... say it, but I was rooting for the deer. <laughs> Hurry up, guys, get out of here. Do, do you think that the deer uh, care for their young in in, tr- in terms of moving against these creatures? Oh, I'm sure they do. I mean, one thing deer do is they'll they'll bed down where the brush is really thick. So they, they have like a barrier between them and any predator. They'll hear things coming and et cetera. You know, and even something that you might not think of as being cagey. Uh, a friend of mine, a guy that I knew years ago, he used to hunt grizzlies. And he, you know, they would, he, he talked about how skittish those things were. Now, what they would do is, they took some old salmon and put it in a uh, you know wooden crate and then chained it to a stump and then just waited. And he said it took three days for the bear. It would look, walk, walk, walk away, look and walk away. And then finally it would go up and start trying to get, get to the salmon. So even a grizzly, which is, uh, you know, kind of apex predator, is uh, skittish. Well, it goes back to what we've talked a number of times about, you know, people talk about, well, how come we don't get any pictures with game cams? And I know there's going to be some people out there that claim they have, but there aren't any good pictures with game cameras. One of the main reasons is that's a human-made object. And researchers have noted that other primates, chimps, etc., will go out of their way to avoid human-made objects in their area. But it's not just primates. All, all the animals will usually avoid human-made objects in their areas. That is, and you know, another good point on that is we think that we can't see infrared, but actually you can. You do see a very narrow spectrum of the infrared, but think about it from the creature's standpoint. And I'm not talking just Bigfoot, but Mm -hmm. all the animals. You've got this thing out there that suddenly flashes. A light, right. Yeah, it flashes an infrared light when you trigger it. It'll spook and it's, them. Yeah, and it's also, it, it, it's either emitting infrared or it's emitting ultrasound to trigger the flash, right? Mm-hmm. So this thing is active, it's doing stuff, and just because we can't see or hear the ultrasound or the, you know, the, um, see the infrared, the animals can so right. it's got to be something very strange in their environment, very foreign. I mean, and aside, aside, yeah, aside from it being man-made, I mean, that's one aspect of it. But the other one is something, it's just something that doesn't belong in their area. And, you know, they're always, especially the prey animals are on the lookout for uh, predators and anything that could, you know, have a, be a problem to their safety. So they're going to avoid those things. And let's face it, humans are the top predator. Absolutely. As far as- yeah, as far as they're concerned. And, and, and I sus- Oh, I just gonna I want to comment real quick. Um, I suspect that even the Bigfoot, you know, one on one, you don't stand a chance. Uh, five against one, you still don't stand a chance. However, I think the Bigfoot, well, I know they do. They're they're very intelligent, uh, 
you mess with the humans more are coming. it's like yeah a lot of them are coming and they don't stop it's like a beehive so it's sort of like okay what's what's the most important thing here uh, i'm gonna mess with this human or avoid future problems right yeah great point and what, what tom just talked about too is that do you think that these creatures have even more capabilities in terms of recognizing like signals or infrared or th things like that uh, compared to, to to most animals or mo most humans oh sure well i don't know about most humans but yeah they're gonna they're gonna be smarter than most creatures out there you know here's the other thing i personally believe that when people go into an area where the creatures are if they see you the second time i believe they're going to remember you and recognize you yep and again so, it, it kind of goes along with what tom said also you know in the previous segment um i suspect they do things to give warnings you know, and, and other primates do that also. If they don't want you near, like gorillas do mock charges. These creatures do mock charges. You know, when they don't want you there, like in lip flip, things like that, they don't want you there, that means get the hell out of here. And if people ignore those warning signs, then they reap the results of that. You know, uh, Will, that, that that's such a great point. And let me ask you, do you think these creatures remember you even after they come, like they go through their cycle, their 500 mile cycle, and they come back, they remember like you individually, like they remember you? Probably. Well, here's the thing. I mean, you're out there, if you're not seeing a lot of people or you're not, you know, on your daily routine, whatever that is, feeding primarily, you know, they see the same person twice. You know, if you didn't see a lot of people, wouldn't you remember that same person the second time? Think about animals with lesser intelligence as well. Um, you know, cats and dogs. They recognize you when you drive home, pull up in the driveway, mm -hmm. versus somebody a stranger's car. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. My. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you, my uh, my dog. When I was uh, in the service, I used to come visit my parents, and my mom said she always knew when I was coming because my dog would start barking when I was like a mile away. He would hear the hear my truck, and he knew that was me coming. Uh, that's interesting. Our neighbors had a dog like that as well. He would. He said, "Okay, well, Mama's coming home. I can tell." Yep. About a minute or two before she got there, and I mean, you know, it's a neighborhood. The sounds are muffled, and she's, you know, like a you know, mile away or so. The dog would go nuts. Yep. Yeah, mine did the same. Willie? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So these so these creatures are, you know, they're all also going to recognize you. In, and by the I, way, I just want to say that when you, if they don't recognize you, it's your first time in an area, you, as soon as you slam the door of your car or your truck, well, <laughs> every if they, creature within miles knows you're there. If they go through their areas, I mean, they know what's there, what's supposed to be there. And they see something, an object, and they know that doesn't belong there. They're certainly going to recognize a human. 
you know, I think about the story that Lee told. I think he told you and I that he was going to an area. He was going fishing. He The last thing on his mind was Bigfoot, and he'd left his favorite fishing lure, mm-hmm. uh, a box of tackle at home. And Lee being Lee <laughs> yelled very loud and expletive. And 30 feet behind him, he gets this roar that just shook his chest. He had not a clue it was there. He was somewhere he wasn't supposed to be. Right. And it was, was probably no longer... one of It's probably one of those places I told him not to go to, and he did it anyway. <laughs> which was <laughs> fairly, gotten to be fairly common. <laughs> you know, Will, were there any places in your childhood that you were told not to go to that you probably did go to anyways? Oh, of course. (laughs) That was the hallmark of my growing up was going to places (laughs) I wasn't supposed to. (laughs) But, but were there any consequences for that? Not from your parents, but uh, discovering maybe why you shouldn't do that. Well, I'm, you know, we talked about this a few times that the bear that we ran into when we were pretty young kids, that was what I had in mind. That was, exactly. that was a good reason. But you know what? Yeah. I kept going back there. <laughs> with, with, your, with your uncle, right? Right. Well, no, we, myself and my two younger sisters. Oh, okay. It was three oh. little kids. I was only about eight at the time, and they were two and four years younger than me. You know, Tom was talking about uh, kind of a legend within the Native American community that, you know, if you're if you're a bad kid... That's you know, right. the, uh, it's going to come and get you, the Bigfoot is. Put you in its basket and take yeah. you off and have you for dinner. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know what? I wouldn't have lasted past five. <laughs> <laughs> well, we went to places we weren't supposed to go on the property. But it wasn't like a big offense in my parents' minds. It was just we were little, and they wanted us to be safe. So uh, as as I got older... You know, they were okay with me going out and doing those things. Yeah. Well, I, I remember as a kid, it was, I was forbidden to go, oh, well, no, a ways away from our house, there was a uh, pond, and I could hear when the evening would come on, uh, I'd hear the frogs croaking, and I always wanted to go out and catch these frogs. And I went out to the pond all the time and got in trouble all the time, but I continued to do it. And, <laughs> Yeah, okay. I, I can sympathize. So here's a question. Somebody wants to know if Bigfoot has ever been seen in suburban areas or urban areas. Uh, we have people where they've been around, well, suburban areas. In fact, the area I grew up in was, I well, it was rural. It wasn't really suburban. But, you know, they, they do encroach on areas that are, are somewhat suburban there's got to be you know got to be access to those kinds of places and each area around the country is a little bit different you might classify them in the same category but the but the landscape is different you know what i mean right in other words in uh, one area let's say in missouri can be considered suburban but it's actually pretty pretty rural right and i think this person was asking uh, they mentioned uh, urban Sasquatch. 
And to me, that seems a contradiction of terms that you're going to see a Bigfoot in the city uh, or even in a, uh, you know, very heavily populated suburban area. Yeah, I think a lot of that's open to interpretation because I'll give you an example. You know, T.W., we've had him on a few times, and um, he showed me where, you know, as a police officer, he was called out, you know, up to... Um, go to the disturbance calls when he first encountered these things. <clears throat> and there was the elderly couple who had one, you know, it smashed out their kitchen window and then he, uh, the man found, or it took a swipe at him in, uh, outside the front door. So he went from there and I think shortly after that he found the, do- the dogs that were all killed and then he actually saw one under a street light. Okay, so he was a town police officer and you would, you would think, and I know the place, uh, you would think, okay, that's that's an urban area. Technically it is, but um, it's a very small community. And, and it's kind of spread out, and it's not what you picture an urban area to be. It's To me, it would be much more kind of a combination of urban and rural. So it's not going to be necessarily off-limits. Uh, I, I think I know the area you're talking about. I believe that's the one that there's a lot of agriculture there's yeah a lot of right, orchards right okay so and so that would explain easily accessible uh, by the creatures you know they got lots of area to, to hide in as they're moving through the areas where they would occasionally come out to a spot like that okay so they're going to come out they're going to feed on the uh the fruit and whatnot yeah whatever's there sure yeah okay and then they have you know being as, as it's an orchard you know they've got um big orchards there yeah yeah, they got concealment, and I think you said there's creeks in there, so they can. Oh, and rivers, all kinds of stuff around there, sure. And really, all you need to do to find one of these things is be a kid on a bicycle in the evening. <laughs> Get on the wrong road. <laughs> right. <laughs> I always wonder what happened to that kid. But, well, so what? What happened to? kids that come out of that bicycle would they be able to you know have the same experience i'm not sure i understand the question no i'm 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 saying like after that uh experience would they be able to come out of that same experience to like understand the you know like what happened well there's only two of them that I'm aware of, the one that we were referring to the rock quarry monster thing that happened back in the late 60s, but, um, and I have no idea, no idea, never saw that kid again. Uh, then there was the kid in New Mexico, you know, the 15-year-old, and uh, he was pretty freaked out, but uh, T.W. hasn't been able to, the, the family moved away not long after that incident, so he doesn't know where they went to. You know, we had one other guy, Paul, from Southern California, Right. Was on. And I think he was actually in Burbank. Yeah. Now, this was yeah. back in the 70s, and, and he said it was an area where he would just go and throw, um, you know, his his grandfather had a uh, butcher shop, and, and the kid would just go and throw the uh, scraps the away in this yeah. one area. And sure. He encountered. I, natural attraction. I always wonder, thinking back, we had a place 
when we lived on the 40 acres by the Puyallup River uh, where my dad butchered. And it was one location out in the woods where uh, he would gut and skin the animals and then they would take them, you know, have them cut up, etc., and packaged. But uh, the gut piles and, and the skins a lot of times were just left out there. And I used to think it was just coyotes that would come in. And I'm sure it was for the most part. You know, different animals would come in and eat that stuff. But I always wonder now, thinking back, I wonder if these creatures ever come through there for any of that stuff. Well, that was a question I was just kind of coming to mind was, do we have any, do we know any credible accounts of people who, hunters and whatnot, who have, you know, they they gut out the deer and then, you know, the, these things either come in at the moment or come in afterwards and you're like, hey, where did, where did the gut pile go? Yeah, we do have some. I, I can't think of any specifics off the top of my head because it's one of those things I have to go back and actually reference, but I, I know we do have several. Well, and then there's the guy that you knew, the biker. Uh, oh, buddy yeah. Fight. Buddy, uh, yeah. Yeah, poaching. And Sasquatch came in and said, thank you. There are quite a didn't few stories him. like his. Quite a few. Yeah, didn't verbalize it. Just for those who haven't heard the story, he, he uh, what was it? They <laughs> It was at nighttime and they shot it. And well, they, they took the Jeep, him and another guy. And I know the place they were going to. So I, I know what the road looks like. It was they were up there. There was snow on the ground, and there was a switchback. They were on the lower part of the switchback, and the switchback is you know when when you're climbing a hill. If you're not familiar with that, you know the roads follow the terrain going up a hill, so they'll go back and forth. And and the switchback was kind of a hairpin turn above them. They shot the deer up there, and they drove up to retrieve it. And when they got to the location, the deer was gone. So they followed the drag marks and the snow and the blood to where they saw this creature dragging it along by its neck. <clears throat> and uh, they decided it was better to let the creature have the deer. <laughs> and you got to think, okay, so I just shot this deer. Now I'm going up to where I shot it and I see drag marks and blood. Huh. Well, what did that? <laughs> That's why they followed it. Right? <laughs> Didn't follow it far until they found the creature. And didn't you say the creature just seemed totally unconcerned with yeah. their presence? Didn't even pay any attention to him. It just kept going. And they didn't follow it. As soon as they saw it, they stopped and said, Oh, uh, we think it's better he has the animal. <laughs> <laughs> right? Better, better him than us. Yeah. And, you know, if the game warden happened to be in the area at the time, well, there's no evidence we did anything. Yeah, go, go find the Bigfoot. <laughs> Yeah. Give him the ticket. <laughs> well, what do we have for questions, fellas? Well, <clears throat> okay, so this person wants to know, and we've actually kind of tackled this a little bit about the, um, is there enough food available in in the forest for these things? Are they strictly vegetarian? Well, we know the answer to that. Uh, or do they merely supplement periodically uh, their diet with uh, with meat? No, it's reverse of that. They'll they diet diet is primarily meat, and they supplement it with vegetation. But when you think in terms of the amount of food 
for something that large. There's plenty out there when you look at grizzlies. Grizzlies are a good example. In that article you sent me, Tom, where grizzlies will consume up to 58,000 calories in a day. And there's plenty to support a grizzly population. So if there's enough to support a grizzly population, then there's plenty to support a Sasquatch population. Absolutely. And, you know, if I was a Sasquatch, I would let the grizzly do all the work, and then I'm just going to go eat the grizzly. Eat the grizzly and the grizzlies kill. Right. (laughs) Double dipping. Let them do the work for you. That's right. And who knows? They may do things like that. What is that noise? You hear that, Tom? Yeah, I did. I uh... Brian, is that on your end? <laughs> is Brian there? Did we lose Brian? Let me see. I think the UFO uh, got him. Brian's there. Okay. Um, so that's, you know, that's a, that's a good point. They, um, now, so I'm going to kind of go into the area of scat coloration, you know, bears in early in the season, generally speaking, you're going to see their scat kind of a very lighter color Mm -hmm. later in the season as they start to eat carrion and whatnot, getting ready for winter, it gets uh, dark, it gets black. And so Sasquatch scat is is universally dark. Is dark, right. And I sent pictures to our forensic anthropologist, John, a number of times, and that was his comment, was the dark color was a clear indication of protein, which means animal material. Yeah, so it's kind of like you said, sort of the opposite. They eat primarily protein, but they will uh, supplement it with uh, vegetation. Yeah, when you look when you look at North America and the Pacific Northwest specifically, in the wintertime there's not a lot of vegetation to eat. So if you were a vegetarian, you'd kind of go hungry in the wintertime. Uh, so there's plenty of uh, plenty of animals to prey on and fish and things like that. So they're going to eat that primarily, and plus you get the most uh, protein and calories out of that stuff, and then you're going to supplement you know, with vegetation when it's available. And even garbage, things like that. They'll eat just about anything. That's a good point. And I hadn't considered that. I didn't even think about that. In the wintertime, your vegetation supply is diminished considerably. Very limited, sure. But the vegetarians are still there. (laughs) Well, they are, but they'll they'll eat lots of different things, too. Right. No, but I'm just saying, if you're a Bigfoot, you're going to go after the deer and everything else. Right. Yeah, and and the thing is, sure they could they could eat the same stuff as deer, but then you'd see a lot more sign of that, and we don't. Right, and we don't. Yeah, you'd see in the summertime when there's you know there's different things that they'll eat. You'll see areas that are completely stripped of leaves and things like that. Uh, and I have pictures I've taken of stuff like that, but uh, that stuff's not available in the wintertime, so they have to have a different food source. Yeah. And I guess the other question is just thinking out loud. I'm just curious how they, um, you know, how they uh, go about if they have the different tactics, I'm sure they do, for getting deer and elk and whatnot. Oh, I'm sure. 
specifically offhand. I don't know, haven't observed that, but you know they do follow the especially their elk herds around. And um, we had Chris in Alberta on once when he was talking about that one of the first times that he went hunting with uh, I think his uncles, and uh, he was following an elk herd. And he turned to hear a noise behind him, and then when he turned back around, one of the creatures was right there. Well, it was in a in a specific position where usually the the head bull of an elk herd will, will come back around, you know, after the herd has moved into a place, and that's where the oh, creature was. Oh, that's right. That's where the creature was. And as I recall, it rattled Chris's cage. It spooked him. It spooked, <laughs> it spooked him pretty him good, big yeah. time. Because apparently it had been down. In a concealed position, then it just popped up. Yes. And it was very close to him. And again, it underscores the uh, you know the whole fact that they they can be very very close by, and you won't know it. And that, they have to be that way. And even Tom said that in the previous segment. You know, what the Native Americans know this that you know oftentimes you won't know they're in the area anywhere near you, and they can be there quite often watching you yeah absolutely which is once you know that they exist that can be a little bit spooky it can be that's that's one of the problems with knowing you know stuff about these creatures is uh it can definitely change your outlook you know being out there yeah it really does ignorance is bliss and then when you when you learn this, it's, uh, you know, a guy that you and I both know uh, says he will never go camping again. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not in a tent. <laughs> Wooden tent, yes. <laughs> that synthetic burrito. <laughs> yes. Is Brian on mute? I don't know if he's... I was going to see if he had more questions. Oh, he's not here. I think we, let me try to get him back on here. I don't know what happened to him. Maybe he's having problems with his computer. We had some issues to be before we started recording, folks, and we had to reboot our computers, and Brian was offering some advice, and now he's dropped off. Technology is technology. Right. That's right. These computers are not always our friends. No. Well... You have another question, Tom, while we're waiting to see if Brian's going to reconnect? Well, okay, so talking about their activity, you have said that they are kind of 7 by 24. They tend to be more active in the evening. You're going to see them uh, more more at dusk and dawn. Right. But what about midday? Uh, are they snoozing? What are they doing? Well, what, what are your thoughts on that? Okay, they're mostly active during the time periods we talked about around, around dusk, plus or minus an hour of darkness, plus or minus an hour of sunrise. But that's not that's not the total rule of thumb because they're active throughout the day and night. In other words, during the day they're not sleeping all day. They're not going to sleep all night. They're not like humans. They're going to be up a couple hours or whatever it is. Then they're down for a while. Then they're up. It's sort of on and off. In fact, uh, ancient man you know, was probably like that, you know, our sleep patterns developed. It wasn't something we came stock with. So these creatures are probably much more like uh, other primate species that, 
you know, sleep periodically, then they're up, then they're, you know, it's, it's kind of a mixture throughout a 24-hour time period. So I want to get your take on a comment, and I think you had made this comment, that at nighttime you don't want to be in the valleys, or you'll regret Well, that's what, that's what natives said. They said don't, that was their, you know, early advice was don't be in the valleys at night. Um, and if you have to go anywhere, go on the ridge tops, but don't go out, period. And the reason you don't want to be in the valleys is because that's where the game comes at night. They drop down. So they're following. Well, isn't that interesting? They're following the game. Yes. And I'm thinking back in September, we really got the hyperactivity when we dropped in elevation. Right. By probably a couple thousand feet. Yeah, you don't want to be in their feeding areas at night. You know, I, I recommend highly you stay out of there, and, and they're going to let you know don't be there. I see Brian's no. back with us. Brian, you got questions? Uh, yeah, can can you hear me? We can hear you. Uh, okay, okay. So, um, in their uh, disabilities, uh, like, what things do you think that they could be impaired by? Like, is it, like, like running or, uh, like, trying to to uh crush branches or like what what do you think about that and um, i i sort of get i'm I'm trying i'm doing this on my phone now because my computer is uh it it went uh black so i'm I'm just trying to do this on on the phone right now well i have no idea on disabilities we don't get any reports you know people oh we we know one thing Fermented apples. That'll knock him out every time. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tom, Tom, me, Tom sent me the, the text booze. <laughs> I, I suppose that could be considered a, a disability. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be around did, a Sasquatch. Did, I don't really want to be around a drunk one. <laughs> yeah. Did, did you guys see the, the SNL skit on um, apples and oranges with, uh, like, Tom Brady Oh my gosh, that was so funny! Like the last week or a couple weeks ago, that was so funny. So any any of our listeners, I you know what I'm talking about. That that was incredibly hilarious. So but, but you know, and I think there's um, you know again, Will I going back to the apples and going back to the encounter that you had, I strongly suspect that they, and here's why I think this, we have an apple tree in our backyard and just going off of what I've seen there is that the, you know, you get the windfall apples and over time they ferment and we get all sorts of little critters. We get uh, possums and mm-hmm. nutria uh, going after those fermented apples yeah. I know what they want. It's a food source. <laughs> I mean, well, in our place, let's see, that site, my sighting was in, in about October. So the apples and two of the trees, <clears throat> excuse me, would have been rotted away by that time. They were gone. And the other tree, they I don't think there was much on the ground yet then. I suspect what they were after, what was in the barn. Grain and our pig food and stuff like that. And that was plentiful. There was lots available there. You know, you think about it, um, and I'm sure, that, well, I know it's happened. 
you go in the barn and hello you got company in there that you really wish you had fortunately our barn was mostly full of hay that time because we we'd fill it up with hay and there was uh we had some stalls there where the cows could come up and just stick their heads in and we'd have like a like a wooden trough that was sort of built along the front of the hay so the cows couldn't right. get into the hay but we could give it to them in that and that whole side was open so they could just come in there and eat you know during the winter when they wanted to but on the side of the barn we had this big metal uh, container and was open and my dad had friends in the uh, local school district where he would you know get these and i can't remember what he would bring it home in some kind of a some kind of a tank he had, and it was it was quite a bit. He'd, he'd filled this thing up, and it was probably a 500-gallon tank with this uh, food waste from the school. And and that's what he'd feed the pigs. He'd supplement their food with that and grain and stuff. So uh, I think the smell of that probably drew the Sasquatches there because it's it pretty well reeked. Sure, and uh, that's a food source. Well, and... You know, we have a, a guy that we've had on the show before. We know him, Joe. And here in Oregon, somebody he knew was they had a, a nice house and a barn. The barn is actually attached to the house, and this is in the Oregon uh, Coast Range. And the guy walks around the side of the barn in midday. And right there, I mean, as soon as he comes around the corner, right there in front of him is, you know, eight foot red. Bigfoot mm-hmm. glaring at him, and I believe their immediate response was put the house on the market. <laughs> yeah, that would do it. I've heard that a couple times before, but yeah, I mean, if there's stuff out there that's available to eat, especially something that has an odor, you know, where they can pick it up a ways away, you know. And our our farm was similar to others. There were others around the area that had fruit trees, and you know, we had apple, we had cherry trees, we had a pear tree. Um, of course, we had a big garden. There was, you know, the livestock. And for years, we had chickens until um, weasels kind of destroyed that and we quit having them. But uh, there was plenty to eat around there, around that neighborhood. Well, we've got a few minutes left, fellas. What do we have in the way of questions? Well, um Okay, so just as a um, just kind of my own question, do we have any way of estimating the population of Sasquatch? Uh, are there are there indicators or uh, flags or anything that you can use to say, okay, there's more of them in this area versus you know? I know that the <clears throat> Fish and Wildlife, Federal Fish and Wildlife, they have software to determine, you know, populations. It's it's an estimate, but it's, you know, mathematical calculation for any kind of wildlife. And I'm just wondering if, do you know of anything for estimating Bigfoot populations? I guess that's no, where I'm going with this. No, there wouldn't be any anything that could pin it down to one area or the next. I was just told as a, as a general figure, the number was in six figures. But I, I don't know how that applies to certain areas, what the distribution is like or anything. I would say it's got to yeah. be based on, you know, food availability and things like that. 
you know, that would make sense, sure. And so there's a lot of them out there. And I, I would imagine there's, you get in the wilderness areas, you can see more than you are in, you know, New York City. One of, the, <laughs> one of the indicators right now, like I said, for the last couple of years is we're getting a lot of reports of juveniles, not just the sightings, but tracks. Um, you know, that, that number seems to be pretty large compared to the past where there wasn't a lot of uh, reported sightings of juveniles. Now we're getting a lot of them. Well, that's funny you said that because the area that we were in, I mean, the footprint I saw was a juvenile. and It and was. Exact, yeah, a year earlier. The one that we all saw was about, it was solid black and uniform in color and about six and a half feet tall. Yeah. And not bulky, but muscular. When I was there in September, the the juvenile tracks were much smaller than the the individual that would have made, or that one that you saw. That was a much smaller one than a, you know, five or six foot individual would make. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Because that was only about four inches long. Yeah, so that would have been a little tight. Yeah. We're at the end of our time, fellas. Any final thoughts or remarks or questions? I do. Final thoughts are, I want to thank everybody for the questions that you've sent in. They're excellent questions. Fred, awesome question. Danny, everybody else. And keep them coming. It's questions at creekdevil.com. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Absolutely. If you listen to the show on Spotify, um, I haven't... I'm a little behind on putting shows up there, so I'm going to try to rectify that this weekend. So having said that, folks, stay tuned for the next segment. In Bigfoot History, Bachelor Butte, near Bend, Oregon, 1959. Joe Morgan, retired director of Mount Bachelor Ski Resort, told Lee Trippett he had seen unusual prints in the snow about 7,000 feet. They were very large, but not caused by melting or snowshoes. Welcome. This is a collection of six stories being brought to you by William Jevning and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. Wilaki Campground, 2. Klamath, California, 3. Little River State Beach, 4. Lucerne Valley, 5. Night Stalker of Edwards Air Force Base, and 6. A Scary Experience in Northern California. Story number 1. Wilaki Campground, King Range, California. Strange Sounds, Bigfoot occurred in California the evening of September 13, 2001. Humboldt County, California, September 14, 2001. Last night, my girlfriend and I were camping in King Range, northwest coast of California, at the Wilaki Campground with only one other set of campers. We heard a very distinct thumping sound of heavy footsteps in the area about 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. The next day, on the way home, we spoke about it. We both immediately concluded it had to be something capable of heavy footsteps. Having both experienced multiple bear encounters, we could easily rule out a big bear or other similar four-legged beasts. As a result of the experience, we both very quickly shifted from Bigfoot skeptics to interested parties. 
having read some information on the web, it seems a possible hearing of Bigfoot is uninteresting, given all the sightings. Nevertheless, I felt confident enough that these unexplained sounds may in fact be valid, and therefore felt compelled to share them. The sounds were roughly one and a half seconds apart, and were quite heavy, much more than a human could be. We both got a good listen, given that we were in our sleeping bags, ears near to the ground at the time. We both independently thought footsteps must belong to that of a sizable creature. If I had to guess, I would say that the weight would be around 500 pounds and possibly more. The direction was unclear, however. I suspect the distance was within 100 feet and probably were 40 to 50 feet at the closest point. I did exit the tent briefly to relieve myself at a nearby tree during this time. The sounds came to an immediate halt. I could not see anything with my headlamp. I might have contacted the nearby campers regarding the incident, however, they had left earlier that morning. Although I was able to find plenty of information in terms of what Bigfoot looks like, I was unable to find information regarding walking sounds to confirm my suspicions. Any information provided would be welcomed. Also, if you think we could have heard something else, please offer an explanation. I am seeking to explain the incident. This is the end of story number one. Story number two. Klamath, California, September 25th through the 29th, 1992. The Triplicate Newspaper by Steve Selke. Daryl Owen's 8-year-old son and his 12-year-old friend were out looking for snakes on September 12th when, at about 11.30 a.m., they heard branches rustling and smelled a strong odor. The smell was like rotted chicken. It was awful. When we looked up, we saw the big hairy man standing there, about 100 feet away. He was covered with thick, dark brown hair and was shaking a branch in his hand. We could see his face real good. My friend and I looked at him for about five seconds before we turned and ran all the way back home. As the boys turned to head for home, they saw the creature turn and walk into the brush. After questioning the boys, Daryl Owen went back out to check the area. As I headed out there, the phrase the boys used to describe what they had seen kept echoing over and over in my head. The big, hairy man. Not Bigfoot, not Sasquatch, not even Harry from the movie. Nope, they kept calling it the Big Hairy Man. Looking back on it now, I guess that should have been my first clue there was something very unusual about their story. Sure, it was wild, but somehow it just didn't have a false ring to it. And as for the kids themselves, well, there was no faking what they were feeling. They were scared to death. When I got to the spot where the boys said they had seen the big hairy man standing, my life was changed forever. As I went out to the creek bed, I figured I'd find bear tracks or nothing at all, in which case I would then know that the boys were lying about what they had claimed to see. Instead, I looked down and saw these huge footprints in the ground. I just froze. I came back on Tuesday to make a casting because when I first saw these tracks, I sort of freaked out. 
I could clearly hear something crunching through the thick brush going up the steep hillside. And when I heard that and looked down at the tracks heading in that direction, all I wanted to do then was get the heck out of there. Sixteen and a half inches long, eight and a half inches wide. The cast measures sixteen and a half inches long, eight and a half inches wide at the toes, and five inches at the heel. Owen counted thirty-four footprints with an average stride of fifty-six inches. Scott Harriet, Los Angeles, arrived in Klamath, and the men spent three days examining the scene. A few strands of brown hair were found. And then there are the screams. The screams began the night after the boys' sighting. These screeches have echoed across the canyon behind our home almost every night since, and there is more than one of them because you can hear a call and then an answer from another hilltop. The screams usually occur between 9 o'clock and 10 p.m. John Green, speaking to reporter Selkie from his home in Canada, said, Keep in mind, Bluff Creek is only about 25 miles due east of Klamath, but it is another world in environmental habitat terms. I don't know, but perhaps the drought has motivated them to travel westward toward the cooler coastline, like other wildlife has done recently. Darrell Owen reported sighting the creature, which looked directly at him from behind some bushes. It had deep-set eyes and large, close-together nostrils, and its face was dark burnt orange in color. The hair was long enough to flow as it turned its head. Scott Harriet returned to Klamath last week, October 12th, and hiked the area with Darrell. Both were armed with camcorders. Scott likens the heavy underbrush to jungles in Vietnam and says the visibility, even at midday, is poor. Nevertheless, the men found themselves looking at something with red, glowing eyes. The eyes glowed red twice, like the voltage was turned up and then down. The screams have continued nightly, and after the triplicate reported Steve Selke became involved in the Sasquatch research, a friend of his said he was near Davis Lake in Oregon when he heard the screams for 20 minutes. This ends story number two. Story number three, Little River State Beach, Humboldt County, Northern California. Two summers ago, the wife and I were camped along the Little River State Beach just north of McKinneyville, California. I've been retired for five years now. My age is 70. We had been there with family and some friends and had just finished surf fishing along about dusk, I believe it was. Four of us were sitting around the picnic table, relaxing, talking. Sarah brought to my attention a man strolling at a pretty good clip from the direction of the highway towards the ocean. I nudged my brother-in-law and said, Hey, Everett, look at that blankety-blank guy. Naked as a blankety-blank jaybird. We all turned to look. This guy was huge, covered with hair, or in a costume, don't know which, and really moving out about 30 feet away from us. We all agreed he must have been about 7 feet tall or better. Must have weighed better than 600 pounds, because me and Everett's combined weight is 500 plus, and this guy was much bigger than two of us put together. 
The wife noted that he was a candidate for an ugly contest, looking much like a blankety-blank ape, if you know what I mean. He was a hell-bent on getting somewhere fast, and the only place in front of him was the Blue Pacific. Sure enough, we watched him charge out into the ocean and disappear into the darkening waters. We took a high-beam flashlight and went to take a look. The tracks in the sand must have been two of my feet long and some wider, so as we know we weren't seeing things. If that don't beat all, the blankety-blank experiences I had in my life, I don't know what to do. My son-in-law found your website on his computer. We have read the ancient mysteries narration and think we've seen a Bigfoot by chance. We was too stupid to be afraid at the time, but after reading your webpage, don't think we'll ever be doing any fishing in California no more. We think the blankety-blank bastard may have drowned itself. F. L. Monroe, Jackson, Mississippi. That's the end of the Little River State Beach. Story number four. Lucerne Valley, San Bernardino County. This email was originally called 1988 Cement Monster, thanks to Doug and also to Peter Gutia. I really liked your page on the Desert Bigfoot. I used to be stationed at 29 Palms from 86 to 89. I spent a lot of time in the Joshua Tree Monument, but never saw anything of real interest, if you know what I mean. Where I did see something was with my marine buddy Mike in the spring, March of 1988, after leaving Big Bear Lake. We'd been snow skiing all day at Big Bear. Now, as you probably know, the quickest way to get back to 29 Palms is to take the shortcut route through the desert. I believe it goes through, or very near, Apple Valley. It eventually comes in the back way to Yucca Valley after passing through Landers. Yes, I know you know the right highway. Okay, here goes one of the coolest things that I ever saw during the 1980s. Mike and I had just left Big Bear. It was about 9 o'clock p.m. We were completely down from the mountain and just entering the desert, still kind of going downhill. On the right-hand side of the road, there is a cement factory, sort of all by itself. There isn't any civilization around for about 10 miles or so, which isn't uncommon for the Mojave Desert. Mike was driving. I believe I saw it first. From the left side of the road, something very large seemed to stand up on two legs and run across the road. The bottom half looked human, covered with hair. The top half wasn't very visible, but appeared monsterish, scary, in other words. The headlights only got the bottom half, and the damn thing ran out about 150 feet in front of us. It made it across the road in three strides. I distinctively remember seeing the arms pumping back and forth, just like any of us would do if sprinting across the road in front of a car. It appeared to be eight feet tall. Now for the interesting part. I didn't say anything. I just kind of glanced over at Mike. He just kind of glanced back at me. Then we both looked right at each other. What the hell was that, I said. That was the cement monster. After him! Mike slammed on the brakes and turned around. I started digging through the glove box looking for his wife's pistol. I said, go down that dirt road, still looking for the pistol. 
About 300 feet down the dirt road was an old cement factory, but no sign of the thing that ran out in front of us. So we drove around a little bit, but didn't see it. We just accepted that we had simply seen some sort of a prehistoric man, and that was that. And it was no big deal, and maybe someday we might be privileged enough to see another. That's the end of reading number four. Story number five. The Night Stalker of Edwards Air Force Base. From the files of the late Bobby Ann Slate, Bigfoot Investigator. It was a routine night at the Edwards Air Force Base, Air Security Police Desk, until the frantic call came in from the patrol on duty at the restricted site known as Project Logic. The man's voice was urgent and high-pitched with fear. Send a patrol, quick! There's this huge form coming toward me. Hurry! His voice trailed off, and the sounds of gunshots could be heard through the receiver. Then there was nothing but an ominous silence. When the patrol arrived, the guard was found in a dazed, incoherent state after having fired the full magazine in his gun. The Office of Special Investigation, OSI, was called in. According to one military source, the patrol vehicle was found overturned, the patrolman's rifle snapped in two, and huge, five-toed, bare, human-like footprints crisscrossed the site. The patrolman had not been injured, but was terrified. While no official report of this incident can be found in the archives of the base's historical department, the rumor circulated throughout the Air Force Police that the man at Project Logic was deeply affected by his encounter that night. They said he was placed in a military hospital and eventually sent to an overseas base. In the spring of 1974, Edwards Air Force Base security policeman, Sergeant Michael House, was on night patrol on the outskirts of the powerful communication site known as Mars Station which maintains radio contact with other military installations around the globe. A nearby microwave tower, looming like a lonely sentinel in the darkness, stood surrounded by a wooden fence posted with signs advising that explosive devices, electrically operated or magnetically charged, would detonate within a certain radius. Sergeant House was patrolling in the area of the abandoned sled track, once used for testing G-forces, when he saw it. I'd gotten a new spotlight and was trying it out, the sergeant said. Heading back to the main base, I noticed maybe 200 to 300 yards to my left, these large blue eyes. I do a lot of night hunting, and it was strange. They were larger than anything I'd ever seen before. Their diameter had to be about four inches apart and seven feet off the ground. I stopped the truck and sat there watching them. It was too dark to see any body shape to the thing, but the blue glows proceeded towards my truck at right angle for about 100 yards and then stopped. The hair bristled on the back of the patrolman's neck as the larger-than-human eyes began circling and again moving closer to his vehicle. A rank smell like something rotten permeated the air. The thing moved closer again, now coming to within 50 yards of the truck but still its shape could not be discerned through the brush in the desert. Just at that moment, the truck radio advised Sergeant House that he should proceed directly back to the main base, and he quickly left the area. He returned three hours later, but 
there was no trace of the blue eyes. Rain washed out the possibility of locating any tracks the following day. The movement of the eyes was extremely fast, Sergeant House recalled. Another thing that bothered me was that they didn't bob up and down. It was like two lights on a wire moving from one point to another. He was ribbed a good deal while making out his official report on the incident, which was to set the standard of non-reporting from uh, other patrols that encountered strange things in subsequent months. The commanding officer wanted to believe that his men were simply overly imaginative. After all, the desert could produce some eerie effects at night, and then, too, reports of fantastic creatures in and around restricted areas didn't look good in the official log. You're only hearing the wind, he told the men staffing the Mars station on the midnight shift, who said that they'd been hearing some unusual sounds, as well as seeing the dark figure form of something walk past a building, a figure which would have to be almost eight feet tall to be seen through the high windows, something which stepped on and pulverized a glass soda pop bottle in his path. In several instances, calls to the air police about creatures moving in the desert did turn out to be wild burrows moving silently through the sage at night, and that while their eyes are blue, there is almost no reflection due to limited pigmentation. If there were official investigations by the OSI, the men on patrol seldom heard the outcome unless there was some natural explanation. Thus, they wondered about the rumor circulating that the three men on duty at a complex near the bombing range had called in for help. As the story went, when the patrol arrived, they found the security guards unconscious. The door leading into the building was ripped off its hinges, and the sophisticated electronic equipment within had been demolished. Just a tale? It was told to an air policeman by a member of the patrol investigating that call for help. The rocket propulsion lab lies on the eastern edge of Edwards Air Force Base and utilizes a vast area of the facility. It contains installations ranging from gigantic multi-million pound thrust rocket stands to smaller, highly specialized test equipment which can capture and instantaneously analyze the exhaust gas produced by a rocket engine. It is here that rockets and similar hardware are tested for the study of propulsion equipment under conditions of long-term exposure to the environment. It is also here that weapon systems are developed and tested. Certain areas are off-limits to civilians and signs warned to keep out of the potentially toxic areas. Air Police Sergeant Barton had an open mind about creatures. His relatives in Missouri had seen and shot at the mammoth Bigfoot-like monster known as Momo, and though he trusted their accounts of the incident, he also realized the doubt and ridicule they were subjected to when they talked about it. As a result, no formal report was made to the air security police concerning what happened in the winter of 1974, while Barton was on patrol in the vicinity of the Rocket Propulsion Laboratory, and the strange blue lights he saw in the nearby mountains. Assuming the lights to be from a car, Barton drove toward them in order to intercept any unauthorized trespassers. The lights vanished when he arrived at the site where he had last seen them, but now he found his vehicle mired in the soft desert sand. 
Walking approximately two miles back to base, the sergeant intercepted a patrol, and they radioed for a tow truck. When the truck arrived, and everyone returned to the sergeant's vehicle, they found three towed tracks measuring 14 inches long, with what appeared to be a clawed digit at the heel. The wind was blowing soft sand, and the footprints were filling in rapidly, making any precise identification difficult. But whatever it was had completely circled the truck, as if inspecting it, and then walked off on two legs into the desert. Three weeks later, and also on patrol, Air Patrol Sergeant Jones was parked in the region of the rocket site. It was close to midnight. The moon was up when suddenly Jones noticed a shape moving across the skyline of a nearby hill. While he couldn't estimate its height, the trunk area or girth was described as immense. The sergeant quickly grabbed his radio microphone and called HQ. Tell the replacement to hurry up. I might need some help, he urged. As Jones looked back again to the hill, two large luminescent green-blue orbs, like eyes, were moving toward him. They didn't really seem to me like they were bouncing the way a person's would when walking, he said. They kind of floated or were moving on an easy glide. Car lights appeared down the road, and the patrolman lost no time in getting out of his truck and walking to meet the vehicle. At that moment, he was extremely grateful that the men had responded so quickly to his call for help, but that wasn't actually so. The other vehicle had been ordered into the area in response to a report about strange lights being observed in the hills. Yet, no unauthorized cars had been located, and now the glowing eyes had disappeared. All that remained in the vicinity were unusual marks on the ground. The two rounded depressions measured six inches and two inches in diameter, respectively. They were all over the place, Jones said. There were so many of them that I couldn't follow any trail. Barton, who had found tracks around his truck a few weeks earlier, said they were similar to what he had seen. The other man, along on patrol, didn't get out of the car. He said he didn't want anything to do with it. Can anybody blame him? That's the end of story number five. Story number six. A Scary Experience in Northern California, 2004. I would like to share an experience we had last month in Northern California. My brother Zachary and I went to do a little gold panning in the rivers and creeks that encircle the Marble Mountain Wilderness. We know that there has been extensive dredging activity there along the Salmon and Klamath Rivers, and some of the surrounding tributaries. We are not looking to get rich. Just the sight of a little color in our pans is a great feeling. I'm kind of guessing at the exact area, but we had started our run from the south in the hamlet of Etna. We proceeded to encircle the Marble Mountain area, planning on going through Happy Camp and returning north to Oregon after hitting Highway 5 near Eureka, California. We were wading in the river just outside Forks of Salmon, looking for pay dirt, when we heard a kind of scream coming from across the river. It was probably 80 yards wide. We thought it might be a bird or mountain lion, but felt safe on our side of the river. We were panning anyway, and heard a splash, and looked up to see a big stick that had hit the water, 
and was floating downstream. It could not have fallen off a tree, as none overhung the water at the point of entry. We sat up and observed the other bank. A rock also came flying into the water, and while it was not nearly close enough to threaten our safety, it hit the water about halfway, and from the splash, it was sizable. I'm guessing ten inches around. I don't know a human that could throw a rock that big that far. We decided we were not wanted there, even though it was public access. As we picked up our pans and gear to head back to the truck, we again heard more of the screams. This was about 10 a.m., and we stopped to eat a bit later, somewhere after Sums Bar and before Clear Creek. We pulled into a camp area for lunch and met a couple of Native American gentlemen who were outfitted for fishing. We asked if they had ever fished where we had been panning, and they had. We related our experience, and they said, and quite matter-of-factly, that most likely it was Bigfoot who resented our presence. We had only seen some foliage moving, but even looking through binoculars could not see any hair or body that would identify our subject as an animal. Interesting to us, not so much that we were run off by something, but that our Bigfoot suspicions were confirmed by locals, to whom such an experience was seemingly so commonplace. We plan to return later in the year, and will be armed with cameras and tape recorders. It was unnerving, but exciting at the same time. I later learned that these local natives are not generally given to sharing lots of lore or information, but I guess we were visibly agitated by our morning. We will try to warm up to some of the locals and see if there might be any other areas where such events occur. Alfred Red Cody Wednesday, July 7, 2004, 9.53 a.m. This ends the reading of the six stories. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This collection of stories is being brought to you by William Jevning and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. Grand Marais, Cook County, Minnesota, 2011. Snowmobiler spot Sasquatch in Superior National Forest. My sighting occurred in Minnesota. The nearest city to the sightings is Grand Marais, Minnesota. The sighting was in the Superior National Forest on January 29, 2011, around 3.30 in the afternoon. The area has many lakes, and this sighting was near a tributary to one of the lakes. The nearest road to this area is Gunflint Trail. What I and my sister saw that day was incredible. We were snowmobiling in the back country of northern Minnesota when my family and I were approaching a downhill section of the trail we were on. There was a clearing on the hillside above us where there was a break in the trees. As I began my descent on the trail, I happened to look up and spotted something in the clearing about 200 yards above me. My sister and I were at the back of our group, so we both slowed to a stop to see what caught my attention. When we looked at what I saw, we observed a tall, man-like creature watching us. It stood there for about a minute, then reached up, grabbed a branch, and walked off into the trees. The creature we saw was maybe seven feet, and was dark brown in color, with darker areas around the face and chest area. It had long arms and a very human-like appearance, with a high forehead area. We grew up in this area and know the local wildlife extremely well. 
this is not a bear or moose. We have never seen anything like this before. My family has been somewhat skeptical about the sightings of these beings, so when we saw it, it really frightened us. Sorry, no photos, because I was on a snowmobile, and it is rather hard to carry a camera in an easily accessible place. We circled around and could see large barefoot tracks in the snow. The snow is so deep in Minnesota this year, so it was hard to get close enough to get any pictures of the tracks. But you could definitely tell that a two-legged creature passed through the area where we saw it. I wish I had more evidence, but unfortunately I never dreamed that I would ever see something like this, so it really stunned us. My sister doesn't want to go there again, but I would really like to go back in the summer to see if there's anything to be found. This definitely made me a believer in Sasquatch. We did not report it to any authorities for fear of being ridiculed. My sister and I wished to remain anonymous for this same reason but we would like the rest of our story to be shared so that others will know that they are not crazy if they see one of these creatures. Anonymous in Grand Marais, Minnesota, February 2012. That's the end of story number one. Story number two. A story out of Siskiyou County, California, approximately 1996. My name is Mark Kennedy, and I have a good story. It happened about ten years ago while a crew of twelve, including myself, was working a contract for the Forest Service to clear a couple miles of wilderness trail. I believe it was our first night at this particular spot, which was an area in the north end of the Trinity Alps. It was about twenty-six miles into the wilderness zone of the Trinity Forest. Camp was about five miles off the road in a beautiful meadow with a small lake called Red Cap Lake. We were done with our second day of work on this particular trail. It was a trail that took you through the prayer rocks of the Hoopa and Yurok tribes. Being in the Trinity Alps, obviously, we were really high up. We started at about 5,000 feet and maybe went up another thousand. The trail was about 10 or 12 miles long and split about three miles south of Red Cap Lake. One trail took you down into one of the many gorgeous, secluded valleys in the Alps. The other took you to a point. Literally, the end of the trail was on a point that extended out quite a few feet from the true edge of the cliff. At that point, we were about 2,000 feet above the forest below us, so we were very remote. In the meadow, our first night there, we split into two groups trying to find the best camp spot really not hard to do. The meadow was just about twice the size of a football field. Half was all knee-high green grass. The entire west side of the meadow was a small lake. You could catch pan-sized trout all day long in that little lake. Now our meadow was off the main trail which rode the peaks of the mountains we were on. You walked down into this meadow from the north end and as you walked you got a bird's eye view of the entire area. At the south end of the meadow was an extremely rocky cliff that rose above the lake about 200 to 300 feet with the forest ending right at the edge at the top. So now you understand the area a little as I tell this story. We were just finishing our nightly session to end the day around the campfire. Both campsites were at the south end of the grass near the rocks, not far from one another. Everybody had just grown quiet as we all were drifting off to sleep. 
Suddenly, there was this god-awful screaming, howling-like noise that echoed through the meadow to make it sound like the screaming was coming from all directions. And for what seemed to be forever, the strange noise finally stopped and was followed up by one of the trees at the top of the rock cliff getting pushed off. I swear that tree must have hit every single rock that was in its path on the way down. And as it grew closer, the more petrified I became due to its sounding like it was right on top of our camp. Finally, the crashing noise came to a stop without ever landing on someone's tent. I still couldn't move, though. I was frozen position, and I still couldn't move, though. I was frozen position and seeing the brightest shade of yellow I've ever seen. I think the others were, too. Nobody wanted to come out of their tents, but everybody wanted the reassurance of the others. The rest of the night was uneventful. The next morning we were all around the campfire, sounding like a bunch of old biddies gossiping about the night before. We found the tree that came down. It was a full-grown fir. Must have been a full-sized tree when it started down the cliff. Wasn't much left of it when it got to the bottom. I have never heard that strange scream since, and have been back in the woods plenty. None of us could come up with a reasonable explanation for what we heard that night. Shortly thereafter, we were joined by a guide who was Native American. This guide informed us that the prayer rocks I wrote about earlier are on sacred ground, and it is believed that there is a Bigfoot protecting that whole mountain. The guide also went on to say that the noise has been heard before, but in other places. We discussed how big of a creature it would take to push over a full-grown pine or fir tree. We know it wasn't a bear, unless bears are coming up with horrifying new screams. So, it wasn't a bear, but it had to be big and strong. The tree circumference was about four, maybe five feet. And, we concluded from memory of seeing the tree, it was about fifty feet tall and very much alive. At least the parts we were looking at came from a live tree. Nobody would climb up the easy rocky cliff to see where the tree used to be located, so I couldn't tell you if there were any footprints or not. But I can say that this story was backburnered in my memory to tell at the campfires for entertainment. It became very interesting when I heard one of many documentaries about this screaming, howling-like noise that the Bigfoot has been known to make. When I heard that, all of a sudden, that night needed to be shared. This is the end of this story. Story number four. August 2007, Lake Tahoe, Placer County, California. Tracks found 18 inches long, 9 inches wide. I was camping last August with my nephew north of Lake Tahoe. We had been in a moderately developed campground, Crystal Peak Overlook, about 20 miles northwest of Reno, Nevada, where we live. There, my nephew made friends with another little boy, and I started talking to the other little boy's grandmother. She told me how her husband and son had found these Bigfoot prints that May along a creek above another nearby campground, Dog Valley Creek. They reported that in one print they could even make out separate tow tracks. They told a ranger who gave them some plastic tape to mark the spot. That got me curious, so we moved camp the next day to Dog Valley, a primitive campground. 
This is on the dry side of the Sierras at the Timberline, which is about 6,000 feet. Generally, the granite soil of the Sierras doesn't sustain much vegetation, but in this area several small streams converged to make a marshy pasture with a lot of biodiversity. We hiked up the creek that flows through the campground. It was a moderately steep climb. About a hundred yards up, I spotted the bits of tape tied to sticks, stuck in the ground, in a particularly thick patch of trees. The forest floor was covered with pine needles, but you could still see the depressed area of the prints sunk in the soil beneath leaves. In August, when we were there, even I, at over 200 pounds, didn't leave a footprint. But perhaps in May, in the deep shade, the ground had been muddy enough to take tracks. There were three prints marked out, but only one was still the outline of a full foot. However, I could no longer make out any separate toe impressions. It was about 18 inches long and nearly 9 inches wide. All the pictures I took came out pretty useless. Only the one where I put my bare foot in the tracks gives you any idea of size. The area is about 20 miles from human habitation, but gets maybe a dozen people a week off-roading during June through October. The roads to the area aren't cleared in the winter, so there's hardly anyone there until May. The area is in the rain shadow of the high Sierra Peak, so even in winter there's probably less than a couple feet of snow, and it has lots of springs. I'd guess this area would have edible vegetation, if not all winter, at least very early in the spring. This area is not too far south of the Cascade Range, where there are more Sasquatch reports, and might be the sort of area a species might migrate south to for the winter. My nephew asked if the footprint could be made by a really tall person, like a basketball player, so when I got home I did some net research. 18 inches would be a shoe size. 26. Many, many E's. The nearest I found was a guy 8 foot 4 who wears a size 25. There are less than a dozen people in the USA that tall, and most use canes or crutches and wouldn't be up to a barefoot hike in the mountains. I don't have a scanner, but I'll see if I can find a friend to scan the one halfway decent photo to you. Yes, I did have a camera, but it was a little 35 millimeter disposable, and the footprint I found is hard to make out, and the markings on the measuring tape I had in one picture can't even be made out at all. There may have been three prints, but only one was clear enough to be a definite footprint. Gina Bagney, date Friday, 1st of February, 2008. That's the end of story number four. This next story is entitled Wichita County, Arkansas, 1940s. I am 75 years old. I was raised in the county of Wichita in Arkansas. We used to hear Bigfoots during winter time. Dad says they were panthers. Till Dad and his brother saw five Bigfoots in a pool of water at a river bottom. My uncle never got over that shock and would not go into the woods again. Dad said they were ugly and the females had breasts that hung down to here, pointing to his body. I recall laying in that broad shack. It was cold listening to them scream and scream, and they did a lot. 
when I was all of five years old. My dad was out running trap line and doing some farming in the summertime. It was at this time that our canned goods began to go missing from our smokehouse. One time, whole smoked ham disappeared. We could not figure out who was taking the food. My dad told mother that he thought someone or something was following him when he was out running his trap lines. One day he spotted someone. The little fellow was about four and a half feet tall with hair all over him. It also had a hump back and was very ugly in the face which had facial hair. Dad began talking to it and leaving food for the little fellow. It wasn't long before when my dad would go into the woods and holler, the little guy would suddenly appear. We named him Little Sam, which was a name my grandpa had. Nobody knew about Little Sam outside of our family. All those years, Dad was in touch with Little Sam. I only saw him two times in my childhood. After I got married and moved to Oklahoma, my mother wrote me and told me about Dad and Little Sam, saying that they had not seen Little Sam in some time, but they went looking for him and found him dead. When I was reading the letter, I started to cry. It was very sad. Little Sam never uttered a word that I heard about, but he grunted. This is the end of story number five. This is story number six. Wild Man in McHenry County, Velva, North Dakota, 1908. The Stevens Point Journal, Stevens Point, Wisconsin, Saturday, February 16, 1908. Captured a Wild Man. Curious find recently made at Velva, North Dakota. The journal is in receipt of a clipping from a Velva, North Dakota paper from J. Thomas, who is formerly a resident of Keene, a son of Mrs. John Thomas, who still lives at Keene. It relates to the discovery of an alleged wild man near Velva, not far from Mr. Thomas's home. It is stated, for three years there have been rumors of this wild man being seen by persons of veracity, but he had never been encountered at close range until a few days ago, when two cattlemen who were out hunting suddenly came upon him face to face as he emerged from a thicket of brush. One of them succeeded in throwing a lasso around him, and before he could escape he was dragged to a tree and bound round and round with the lasso. Later he was bound hand and foot and carried to town on a dray, where he was imprisoned in a basement. His only clothing was a loin girdle of sheepskin tied with binder twine. He had not been shaved or had a haircut in years, and being a man of an extremely hairy variety, he presented a very grotesque and wild appearance. His eye teeth are reported to be unnaturally elongated in the form of tusks. He refused to talk or eat anything, but drank water like a horse, half a pail at a time. The singular part of it is that this man has always been seen within two miles of the village of Velva. This is the end of story number six. Story 
Number 7. Montgomery County, Arkansas, June 2008. On May 26, 2008, while the writer was in Clark County, Alabama, with area researchers, information was received by telephone from C.K., an Arkansas RFP research project investigator, that a married couple in the rural Montgomery County, Arkansas, had found evidence and had heard sounds that indicated more than one reclusive forest primate was foraging on their property at night. That information had been submitted to C.K. by the adult son of the woman who is joint owner and resident of the property. On June 7, 2008, C.K. and the property owner's son and the writer drove to the site and met with the couple. We arrived about 3 o'clock p.m. and left shortly after 11 o'clock p.m. The couple are in their late 40s and both have daytime employment in Hot Springs. They have purchased a 16-acre tract of land in Montgomery County and plan to build a home on it later. The north side of the property slopes to a small spring-fed creek. That hillside and the creek bottoms below are densely forested with various hardwoods, pine, and cedar. The underbrush has been cleared from the area of the planned home site. Along the creek, there is a very thick undergrowth of vines and brush. The land south of the creek was at one time cultivated, but it is now overgrown in brush, vines, and small trees through which trails have been cut with a bush hog. Throughout the property, there is a prolific growth of muscandine, summer grape, and blackberry vines. There are at least two pear trees in the old cultivated area, although the one seen by the writer appears to be ornamental Bradford pear. A neighbor told them that he had gathered pears from one of the trees. Earlier this year, the owners obtained utilities on the property, and in late February or early March, they opened a driveway through the timber on the north portion of the property. In late February of this year, they purchased a new travel trailer and installed it about 75 yards from the county road that is the northern boundary of the property. General information about the area. The actual location of the property is not disclosed at the owner's request. The property is within two miles of a river, which is a popular stream for canoeing and wade fishing. The site is within the foothills of the relatively small but rugged Caddo Mountains, which adjoin the southern flank of the Wichita Mountains. The area contains a large population of deer, turkey, and raccoon. The area has some cougar and no doubt many bobcat. A large male cougar was reportedly killed within one-half mile of the property a short time ago. During this initial visit to the site, the writer noted a very fresh cougar track in the dust alongside the county road near the home where a wide, well-used game trail crosses the county road. While the area is expected to contain all the other small animals and birds common to this part of the state, it was surprising that no coyote sign was seen around the property, and when asked, the owner said they had never heard coyotes in the area. Summary of Events After moving into the travel trailer, the owners built a wooden porch patio underneath the trailer's retractable awning. While neither of the residents are hunters, and neither own a firearm, they are both avid bird and animal watchers. They have installed feeders for birds, 
and began putting out dog food and scraps for the raccoons. For some time the couple had been spreading corn on the ground in a spot in the woods in front, east of the trailer, and at another location on the opposite side of the trailer as food for the deer. Sometime after they started putting out corn for the deer, they found a carcass of a deer near the west side feeding area. The witnesses stated that one of the deer's front legs and its head had been torn off. The head was found a few yards away, but the leg was partially eaten nearby. Both of the deer's back legs were broken, and much of its hind quarters had been eaten before the carcass was found. They stated the deer's body cavity and stomach had been torn open, and the internal organs had been removed. There was undigested corn and corn mush inside the body cavity and spilled outside the carcass. When the carcass was again viewed the next day, they saw fresh blood and an exposed shoulder blade which indicated something had fed on the carcass overnight. A week or so later, another deer carcass was found at the other baiting site in front of the trailer. Both of the deer's back legs were broken, and the carcass torn open and partially consumed. Shortly after finding the last deer carcass, the couple stopped putting out corn because they thought a cougar was ambushing the deer at the baiting locations. A day or two later, the couple found an injured dog lying beside the porch early one morning. They don't own a dog. When they stepped outside, the dog managed to get up and walk away, but there was a large bloody area on the ground where it had been lying. Shortly after seeing the injured dog, they found out that another dog, a Rottweiler weighing close to 200 pounds and belonging to the neighbor, had been attacked or otherwise injured. Something had torn off one of that dog's back legs. According to the couple, the dog somehow managed to return to his owner's home and still was alive. The couple said that now the large dog usually just stays on the porch and will no longer leave the owner's yard. Investigators note, when C.K. and the woman's son and this writer were leaving the couple's home site and driving through the woods road toward the county road the night of the initial meeting, C.K., who was sitting in the front passenger seat, told me there was a deer in the woods on my side of the vehicle. I stopped and saw an animal that I at first thought was a coyote moving through the woods. As I entered a more open spot, we saw that it was a large dog. We then drove away. The next night, about 8.30 p.m., the property owner called to tell me that when he went outside early that morning, he found a dog badly injured at the old baiting site east of the trailer. He said that it appeared the dog's back or its hips had been broken. He said at the time that he did not think that the dog would survive, although he said the dog managed to drag itself away the next morning. From his description of the dog, it was the same one that the three of us had seen the night before. Shortly after finding the deer carcasses, the husband spoke to a neighbor about any strange things that had occurred on the neighbor's property. The neighbor reportedly told him that five of his sheep had been killed and ripped apart inside an enclosure. When asked what he thought had killed the sheep, the neighbor said he thought it was dogs because he found some type of terrier inside the enclosure when he found the dead sheep. The couple stated that they had often sat outside on the patio porch at night and early in the morning during the week. 
He arises about 4.30 a.m. on weekdays to make coffee, and she joins him outside for a few minutes later. They both leave for work about 5 a.m. They stated that on many occasions when they stepped outside before daylight, they would hear the sounds of something crashing through the woods and brush near the trailer. They assumed it was deer bounding away, although they thought it was odd that deer would make such noise leaving the area. They said that on several occasions they had heard loud ape or monkey-like sounds from the adjoining woods while sitting outside late in the evening and at night. Recently it became apparent to them that at times the sounds were being made by more than one animal. A few weeks ago, a relative found a very large, about 18 inches long, track in a fire ant hill near the creek. The residents found another such track in one of their small vegetable gardens located northeast of the trailer. On the day of this initial visit, the writer observed two recently made tracks of about the same approximate size in the leaves and soil west of the trailer. The property owners also reported that some of the suet blocks used to feed birds were torn down and removed. They supposed that raccoons had taken the food, even though the couple thought they had suspended the blocks out of the reach of those animals. The husband began using wire to secure the door of the wire suet baskets so that raccoons could not open them if they managed to get them. Although the wife stated she could not open the baskets with her hands after her husband wired them shut, Something continued to tear the baskets down and open them to obtain and consume the suet blocks. Recently, the couple began putting up hummingbird feeders. Two of the feeders are small, but one holds about a quart of sugared water. A few nights ago, when the large feeder was nearly full, something reached the feeder and drank the entire contents except for some spillage that coated the outside surface of the container. The feeder was elevated and suspended away from a tree trunk, on an L bracket. Because of the position of the container and its capacity, the couple thinks it is unlikely that raccoons emptied it, although they concede that a raccoon might have been responsible. Other details. While completing this initial report, the writer telephoned the reporting witnesses at 8.40 p.m. on June 10th to ask about a few details. After clarifying the details, the husband asked if he could pose a question to me. When I told him that, of course, he could, he asked if I had ever heard whooping-type sounds, which he began to imitate over the phone. The sounds he made were nearly identical to the whooping sounds attributed to the reclusive forest primates. When I told him the possible source of the sounds, he said that both he and his wife had heard those sounds about twenty minutes earlier, coming from the opposite side of the creek and downstream. After some discussion, he said that he might go onto the porch and make those sounds to see what would happen. I advised him to be extra careful because the animals might be much closer than when he heard them originally. This is the end of this collection of stories. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your
is open.